Do you like books or movies or TV shows or songs with lyrics? You know, things that were created by writers. Of course you do. Do you like watching people type? I doubt it. Do you like hearing people tell you about how they came up with the things they type? Maybe. And there are lots of shows like that. But this isn't one of them. Do you ever procrastinate? Writers do too. So if you've ever enjoyed a great book or film or TV show or song or poem, and you thought, I'll bet the woman who wrote this epic high fantasy TV series, or the guy who wrote this funny queer sci-fi novel, or the person who writes this punch-you-in-the-gut poetry would be really fun to hang out with, and I'd like to hear them confess their bad not-writing habits. You're in the right not-writing place. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry, stuff like that. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. From Notify Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Today's secret word is check new wave. Welcome, everybody. Today's guest is Elliot Kalin. Uh, Elliot Kalin is a writer who's worked in television, comic books, newspapers, podcasts. As you know, I've been trying to broaden out, uh, you know, the different genres. I've had sci-fi authors and, and children's book authors. And with Elliot, I kind of now get a whole bunch of genres all on the show. Uh, he's written for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, Mystery Science Theater 3000, co-host on the long-running podcast, The Flophouse, which I will want to talk about because I'm a big fan and I will have to limit myself or I'll fanboy too much. Uh, he's currently a writer on the Fox animated series House Broken, and this is very exciting to me because I'm a fan, just released Maniac of New York from Aftershock Comics. Mm -hmm. uh, and also currently working on a book about joke writing for the University of Chicago Press. So how's that process? Oh, no, can't talk about process. Uh, how did, how did, uh, how, I'm going to slip right away and go into process. You know, this is not a show about that. Just show about. What I was promised no process. You, yes, you no said, process you said, questions. can you come on the show? And I said, just, we're not talking about process, are we? And you said, no process. not at all, never. Although exactly. I realized during the introduction, I forgot. I also have written two children's picture books. So I should have mentioned right. that also. Yeah. Yes. Horse Meets Dog with Tim Miller and Sharko and Hippo with Andrea Tsurumi. And I should have. I've been, I, I somehow feel like I have done very little in my life and yet somehow have a bunch of things that I forget a about. A lot of writing credits. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, how many writers can say, oh yeah, I was writing for this, you know, hit TV show I was writing for. I know I've, I've been, how long have you been doing the, the Flophouse now? It, uh, it's been about 15 and a half years. I, I mean, the podcast itself has been about 15 years. I, I started uh, five five months in or something like that. They had a, they, there was another co-host originally. The co-hosts are me, Dan McCoy, and Stuart Wellington. Dan and Stuart started the show with another friend of theirs, and he ended up moving away and leaving the show, and I took over. So it's been about 15 years anyways. I have then. listened to almost every show. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. it's, Thank it's, you, it's, and I apologize. It's it's creepy. <laughs> like this is one of those things. And and folks who are you know listening to the podcast, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm presuming our podcast fans. And one of the weird things about podcasts is this means we have never met, and I hang out with you for an hour and a half to two hours every week, it's, which is it, weird. <laughs> it's something that I mean. It's something that um. Speaking of that, that book, the joke writing book from uh, University of Chicago Press. I'm going to have a chapter in it about podcasting. And that's something that I want to talk about in it is basically that 
there's a connection between the podcaster and the audience that becomes so tight and so close in a very intimate way, in a very strange way. And I think there's something very beautiful about it. The thing I love about any sort of writing work at all, but podcasting especially, is being able to make a connection with somebody who otherwise I never would have met. Yep. I, and they wouldn't know I exist and I wouldn't know they exist. And most of the time I still don't, don't know they exist, but they know I exist. So I get well, the better and, of it. And, but, but that knowledge of that, that, that you exist is so intimate. It's, it's, yes. I mean, it is, it is beautiful. It's also creepy. Like you, it is, you get it, together with three friends and have fun and 10,000 people are in the room leering. Like yeah. that's weird. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a strange thing. And when I first started doing live shows of the podcast, people would come up and they'd talk as they talk to me as if they knew me right. and my wife would be, so she would find it so frightening, you know, yeah. and I, as someone who is neurotically in need of attention, <laughs> yes. I like it. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. But she, she doesn't like it at all. And the, it, but it is a very strange thing. And like, I have friends who listen to the podcast who are real friends of mine, but will go months without talking. And then they'll call me and they'll be like, I forgot that we hadn't talked in a while because I've been listening to the podcast yeah. and I thought we were talking or uh, I will. And I have the same thing with other podcasts. There are podcasts where I feel very close to the hosts, but I've never met them. Right. I'm just a, just a listener. And it's very strange. I know if I ever met them, I would be like, hey, yeah, what are you in this thing? And how about that? And they well, would say, yeah, who are you? What this is this? This is something for the book, you know, potentially. Like, I think it has to do with how we file information in our brains. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I hear John Oliver talk about his wife fighting in Iraq. And I file that in as I have a friend whose wife yeah. fought in Iraq. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that goes in the same place as the information about my close friends. And if I met him, he would be like, that's creepy. I don't know you. And yeah, how do you know so thing? much about my wife? Right, I, I, exactly. If you need, right? if you need, I can vouch for you. I've met, I, I met him and I met his wife and, and they're very nice. But, they, they, but why was... do I know this fact? I don't need this fact. It does not. <laughs> it's you know, true. It's well, and, I, it, in there, you know? and I think it files in part because podcasting is for the most part an audio medium. Occasionally yeah. people watch the video of it, but it's an audio medium and you don't, so it doesn't have that filter of the visual where you are reminded all the time, this is not happening next to you because you're seeing John Oliver in on a set wearing a suit, you know, yeah. and it's also something that we tend to do while we're doing something else. It's not an appointment that we make where we say, like we don't, when we go to the theater and we say, I'm sitting down, I'm aware of the artifice. I am making a place for it. Instead with podcast, it's like you're cleaning the house, you're driving. And so it worms its way into the into the casual life part of your brain, yeah. as opposed to staying in the separated entertainment part of your brain that yeah. it should be. And it, yeah, it's very, it, there's a- That makes a, a lot very, of sense. There's really good research that this is why people retain information better from actual books rather than uh, books that have, you know, that, that are, that are uh, e-books. Because mm -hmm. we put information in our brains based on geography. That fact I learned on the mm -hmm. bottom corner of this page about three quarters of the way through. Yeah, yeah. If you don't have that sense. And so I can't tell you when I learned that John Oliver's wife fought in Iraq. It was this piece of information that has no geography because it was, you know, while I was gardening or whatever. Yeah. So it's just this random thing I learned about a buddy. And that, you know, that would certainly be a weird thing to go, hey, I learned this random weird thing about you while I was gardening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just sounds so strange. And there's something very, there's something very like sweet about it that you can feel that connection with someone that you haven't met. But yeah, it's also creepy when you, <laughs> it's creepy when you, when you act on it as if yes. it is a friendship, you know, yes. the same way that um, I have that one of my least favorite uh, instant impulses that I have, I have a bunch of impulses that I don't like. One of my least favorite impulses is when I see something I like, I'm like, I want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I have to be a part of it. And it's, and I think uh, 
as long as I don't act on that impulse and I can just enjoy a thing that I like, then things are fine. But if I act on an impulse and I'm like, um, I should really be a part of this thing, like then either I try and I fail or I impose myself on somebody who's a stranger, which is not good, or I my like of that thing curdles because I'm like, ugh, I'm not a part of it. It's terrible. Anyway, I've, so- I've had some mortifying experiences where I'll see a, a celebrity. Uh, I, I met one of the Blazers one time, literally at the airport. Mm-hmm. So this guy, this poor guy is, you know, flying in late at night, just wants to get his luggage. And this random weirdo walks up and just goes, thank you. And like shakes his hand and leave. <laughs> like, and I look back and I'm like, what was I doing to Batum? Like, you know, it was just, I recognized him and he's a basketball player and I wanted, you know, and yeah. I, think, I, just, I don't know. I think it's speaking as someone, I guess it depends <laughs> on when that happens all the time, but speaking as someone who that happens to sometimes, yeah, I, it's always very nice as long as the the person is quick and polite. And, and when, if I ever see someone that I- away. <laughs> yeah. And, and if, if ever I'm, the people I get most tongue-tied around are comic book professionals. Those are the only people that I get really, really tongue-tied around. And the, but it's like, as long as I go up, I say, I really enjoy your work. Thank you so much. And then I don't go to the next part of my brain that says- how do I become friends with this person? Instead, yes. I shut it off there and I say, thank you. And then I walk away. I think or, everything's you know, fine. Rob Liefeld, you can't draw feet. I don't know why I said that out loud. I'm leaving now. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's not like he's going to be like, I never realized that. You I know never, what? Tell me nobody's more Nobody's ever this. said that to me except for the last four awkward nerds who mentioned it. Thanks. <laughs> like, you know, like, yes. Uh, sorry, Rob Liefeld out there. You're you're fantastic. We he's doing it. fine. He's doing fine. He, he, doing he, okay. You know, you don't have to worry about him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so... Um, regular viewers know we always dress up for the show and Elliot has absolutely come in costume. And so I tried to match. So for the sake of the podcast, folks, tell everybody what you chose to wear. So I'm wearing the armor of the Infante Luis, Prince of Astorius. It's on loan from New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art from their Arms and Armor Hall. This was built, this was sometime between 1707 and 1724, probably around 1712 when he was five. He died very young. And this is... It's possible the last royal armor made in Europe. It was entirely decorative by that point. You didn't, need, you weren't leading your troops in battle anymore. Uh, so this was given to him by his great grandfather Louis the Fourteenth of France. And I've just always liked it. I've, I've always the Metropolitan Museum of Arts one of my favorite places. I love the Arms and Armor Hall. And this one, there's certain, there's a certain jaunty gaudy decorativeness it's to really it really decorative like the all yeah. the filigree around every line it's it's fan and and so mine is very much a step down i went with uh, uh <laughs> the armor of andreas austria from 1568 it's older it's simpler you know it doesn't have all the 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 red and yellow around all the lines that you've got going on mine is you know very straightforward it is i feel very constrained in it uh, it mm-hmm. is not yeah, big look, enough for me you look uncomfortable i, I mean i appreciate is, you're trying to match but it doesn't look comfortable no yeah, it yeah. is too small but uh it and it is uh the the name of the museum that i got this from i don't even know if i can pronounce it it's the kunst this Storsten Museum That's in Hofstrad Kunst, in Kunst Historisches Museum. It's, it looks like it's like in uh, yeah Hofstrad und Rustkammer Museum. Uh, Kunst yeah. Historisches. Um, so it's like his art history museum. So that's but, that, but in German. You yes, know. but I have to confess, I got it through the uh, uh, Cleveland Art Museum. And if you ever get to go to <laughs> Cleveland, Cleveland is this weird, like blue corner of this purple state. 
and the art museum is fantastic. Really? I've and, never been there. And free to the public. It's like really? this liberal utopia. Like, hey, shouldn't museums be free to everybody? Go to the art museum. And again, they have a great armor hall or it's it's a it's a uh, exhibit that is uh, not permanent. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's it was, this was lent by the museum in, in Vienna. And then I was able to acquire it from the Cleveland Art Museum in exchange for letting everybody know, check out the Cleveland Art Museum if you're ever in Cleveland, because you're in Cleveland. What the hell else are you going to do in Cleveland? Go, go I mean, to the Art Museum. It's, it's pretty much de- just that in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? And which Have you ever been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? That I have been to. Not it since I was a kid, but I have been a to, yeah. Cool. Like, I, so my fiance talked me into going. I was My mm-hmm. folks live in Cleveland. And I was like, you know, here we are. We're in Cleveland. And my parents are going, well, you got to do all the Cleveland stuff. And there's not a lot of Cleveland. <laughs> you got to go see Drew Carey's house. Right. You, you know, gotta go. and, uh, and my fiance was like, fine, we'll go to the Rock and Roll hall of fame and you know she was i'm thinking this is going to be a whole bunch of guitars like this Mm -hmm. is just going to be memorabilia and for folks who've never been it's an it's a history museum it's a great lens to understand u.s history it goes all the way back through the you know blues history and country and everything because if you're going to understand where rock and roll comes from you've got to know blues history you've got to know you know and, and so yeah certainly i was surprised by what a great day that was so do and now I, yeah, I can finally go back there now that i think judas priest was finally inducted right? yes i believe judas priest has been inducted just um, recently yeah and every, then, they uh, were, dolly parton was this last year which and I'm dolly like, parton which is fine you know she's, she's got to put she, out a rock album now it will be good like if she, she puts out a with, real hard rock album like pat benatar style you know like well she should know. do with rob halford like that. that's, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big Judas Priest fan. It's one of my two favorite bands. And I, it would gall me every year that they would be on the ballot. Yeah. And, and I would get so mad that all these other bands were getting, and I, 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 you know, they're not bad, but I was always getting mad that like the Foo Fighters are in here. Right. Really? Judas Priest isn't here. Like who's been influenced by the Foo Fighters? And at this point, at this point, many bands have been influenced by but the Foo Fighters. When they first but, got in. Yeah, they, they had they a Mentos were, video. Like we yeah. use them as the Mentos video. Yeah, band. and meanwhile, Priest was one of the one of the one of the bedrock bands of metal. You oh. know, well, uh, and there would be no Foo Fighters without Priest. So putting Foo Fighters, yeah, Priest yeah, exactly. Totally I don't know how true that is, but it, I'll say it. Yeah, I'll believe well, it. Well, you know, you know what I mean. Like incredibly <laughs> yeah. influential. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, spe- and talk about a blues influenced band. They started as a blues band. Yeah, Judas Priest. Yeah. But anyway, so that's so that's my argument. I know they already got inducted, but if I guess take that argument, send it back in time so they yes. get inducted earlier. <laughs> yes, we are angry yeah. that it took so long. <laughs> um, speaking of, what has been your favorite distraction this week? Speaking of music, so I often find myself. I, I'm usually I'm I feel like I'm on this podcast under slightly false pretenses because I don't tend to procrastinate that much mm. when I'm writing. I find I always have a lot to do and I really like writing and I feel a neurotic compulsion to write. Like when I'm not writing, I feel I want to be writing really badly. Like there's the thing that I, a lot of people have said, but I know Douglas Adams used to say it where he's like, I don't like writing, but I like having written. But I like mm-hmm. the, I like the work of writing, yeah, although it can be hor- horribly frustrating sometimes. Uh, but I find that I get very distracted for short bursts of time by listening, looking up music on YouTube, especially. And there was a period when I couldn't work because I would have to listen to this Japanese singer, Yoshiko Sai. And now the thing that's gotten me the most is there's my other favorite band other than Juice Priest is Sparks um, and the stars of the recent documentary, the Sparks Brothers. And the 
which was the most exciting documentary to me because I went to see it with a, with my friend Brendan. And at the end, there's it shows footage from a concert in LA. And I attended that concert with my friend Brendan. So it was like, we're seeing the show again. Like, this yes. is great. But uh, oh, that is cool. But they have, but there are big parts of their back catalog. They have a lot of albums. They've been around for 50 years. And there's, really changed over the course of their careers. Too. Yes. They and their albums are- phase and- Yeah. And they, are, they had a disco phase. They had, they had, yeah, they're like, European dance uh dance music phase which is my least favorite of their phases and that then uh the I so I kind of there are big chunks of their discography that I feel like I listen to once and then it's not for me and I set it aside and then I come back to it and their very earliest albums which always felt very a little too raw to me and like a little too unpolished when mm-hmm. I think of them as pretty polished musicians uh I just started listening to again and there's a song that I hadn't known as well from their second album called Moon Over Kentucky. That is like, uh, I'm playing it over and over again. And it's such an ominous, like grim song in a way yeah. where the way I'm, if I'm reading the song correctly, it's telling the story, I think who someone who has just lost their virginity and it was not, in, it, they were disappointed by it. And they're, it's the same night that man is walking on the moon for the first time. And so the singer is saying like, I know somewhere up there, they're trampling on your face uh, and you're not being treated the way you should. And you just had your first encounter, how disappointing. And I just had my first encounter, what, how disappointing. And it's like, take moon over Kentucky, take me away. And it's so haunting. And uh, there's, it's just, it's a beautiful song. I'm, it's possible I'm misreading what is going on in the song because the thing with a lot of Sparks lyrics is that you have to kind of like, there is a set scenario and, and situation and you kind of have to puzzle it out sometimes. But there's there's one line in it where they say, they say, cut your ties with this possessive mother, she'll destroy you. And I assume they're saying like, moon, leave the earth. Like yeah. the earth does not have your best interests at heart. And it's such a, uh, it goes find someone, something like find someone who will respect you. And it's like, leave the earth, come with me. Yeah. Like I respect you, moon, like we can yeah. have a relationship. And I just love this very serious, almost like Nick Cavey song. That's like yeah. essentially like a love, like a sad love ballad to the moon, you know? Yeah. And it's it ends in this kind of like, this grim organ sound from uh, from the keyboards and anyway, and it goes it's on a, for like a minute. Like the yeah. last part is just ominous for like a minute. <laughs> for like a minute, and there's a they did a they did a concert. I didn't get to see any of these because they were in England and I don't live there. But uh, and my fa- my sister's family lives in England, but they didn't live there yet, so I couldn't use this as an excuse. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go visit them this summer, and it looks like Sparks will be playing the playing the Hollywood Bowl the week we're probably gonna go. And I'm and my my wife is like, we can't plan our vacation around a Sparks concert, <laughs> like. But uh, they and you're did like, this. Okay, we won't. But really, but really, I, yeah, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'm gonna yeah. But the uh, and they might be Giants' is opening, which when I was in high school would have been a big thing to me. But now I'm like, yeah, 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 Sparks. I don't want to see yeah. anybody else. But yeah. uh, they did these series of concerts about 14, 15 years ago when their 21st album came out, where over 21 nights, they played each of their albums in their entirety. And from that series of concerts, there's recording of them playing Moon Over Kentucky. That's really fantastic. And like, and you can hear, it's not an enormous venue, and you can hear the audience getting so into it. And like the best, a lot of those videos from that concert series, the best thing is just like how excited the audience is and how comfortable they feel like interacting with the with the performers and all the recordings are people's off people's phones pretty much. So it's like, it's, it just feels like a, um, like you're in, when you watch that recording of it, it feels like you are in just like a real, a real community, you know, like a yeah. community of people who are in this, in the band and listening to the song and also somehow part of the band. And it reminds me of a, there's a New Yorker article just recently about Metallica because they have their new album coming out. And 
just the way that Metallica talks about their fans and the way their fans talk about Metallica, where it's like, it feels like a real family. And it's such yeah. a, such a, it's such a sweet thing for a, a Metallica of all bands to, yeah, to, uh, I know, to be right? a part of, but, but you know, yeah, but it makes sense. Like, you know, the diehards that becomes their part of their identity, you know? Yeah. And when, and it's the closest, it's like the closest thing I can imagine to that kind of podcast audience is when you follow a band for decades and you're growing up as they're growing up and you're just kind of suffused in it. And podcasting is like if you love a band and it releases a new song every week and you are developing with them. Because that's now I'm just those two are the tapers, you know, where they're like, yeah. oh, th- I can identify which show this was. And, yeah, I know what I know, you know what what board that was t- that was recorded I, I, off. I've got of friends it. who were big fish fans. And yeah. Fish was a band I never could get into. It's just it feels like musical masturbation to me a lot of the time. Like it's just, <laughs> you know, yes, we know you can do amazing things. You're showing off. This is not for me. This is for you. You're noodling. Uh, but the diehards and partly that is I'm a lyrics guy. I'm a writer. I want the, the words. Yeah, you need you know? words. And so, you know, the, the people, my friends who really knew music, you know, they were these musicians. They were these instrumentalists were like, you've got to listen to this. You've got to hear what this what Trey is doing here. You know, and I was like, what Trey is doing is not interesting lyrics. That's not you know, that's not for me. But they could tell you this is this show. This is this is in the gorge, and this is you mm-hmm. know the, the, when they're playing this place just by tapes because they had you know they were they were spending as many hours as I am spending with you listening to you talk about bad movies every week like that. And was, they <laughs> and they were mere, they were spending that with artists as opposed to yeah us talking about bad movies <laughs> and like doing dumb voices and me making songs up off the top of my head and and, making me laugh very hard every week. Yeah, there you go. And there's there's we've all seen Sullivan's Travels, right? Like laughter is not nothing to sneeze at. There's worth oh. in that also. Dan had this line this last week where it was so understated. It was just this little tossed off joke and I lost it. And like, you guys went on like it was nothing. Like you maybe didn't even hear him. And I was like, that was really funny. It was, it was always talking, he was talking about Miss Piggy. And, uh, and uh, no, it was Miss Piggy. It was- uh, I'm talking um, about Camilla, was that it? Camilla, and he goes, yeah, Camilla was surrounded by her loved ones. And he goes, (laughs) and gravy. And then just went on and I was like- Oh, I didn't even hear him say that. That's funny. That's really funny. I was too busy. I was too busy. So this was this is for anyone who doesn't listen to the Flophouse or I, we I did a I hosted an Oscar themed episode and I had put together a montage of great performances of chickens in film and I ended it with Camilla the the Muppet and then at the end I put 1976 to 2022 as if she had died during COVID and Dan was like wait did that happen did she and we were like yeah the puppet died Dan totally like, happened yeah. totally happened I, I think I think I said to him that's why that's why Gonzo's been wearing black at all his public appearances <laughs> like and, and he was he like totally was you know believed it like yeah it was so great well, he's he's a he's he's a child at heart which is which is one of the beautiful things about him there was a period when he was going through a, a rough patch when I still lived in Brooklyn and my older son, before I had a younger son, when my older son was about three years old and Dan would come over and I, there and like have dinner with us. And I, and I took a picture once of Dan and my son both lying on the couch, watching the Muppets together while I was making dinner. And it was like, Oh, my two boys, like, yep, the my, thing. my, my like, sweet kids. Yeah. Caring for one another and watching the Muppets. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so what about uh, uh, in the news? What has been taking you away? Sometimes this is less constructive and uh, more, you know, what we we wouldn't want taking us away, but we've got to yeah. pay attention. So what's been uh, drawing you away from your work news wise this week? Lately, I mean, I certainly am as much as any liberal Democrat. I, you know, end up looking at video of Republicans saying things that I don't agree with or being genuinely on that scale between policies I don't agree with to mad, you know, maniacal stuff. Yes. But 
the the specific one this week is just reading State of the Union analysis because it's like I'm this is an unpopular thing to say even among Democrats, but like, like I've always liked Joe Biden. Like I've always found him to be someone that I really liked and believed in. And watching him do the State of the Union, like and then read I just want to read all the articles about afterwards that are like, he really knows how to do this. Boy, <laughs> he really sparred with those Republicans well. And I'm like, yeah, no duh. Like he's been in politics for 50 years. He's an old man, but he's yeah. like, this is the thing he likes to do best in the world. It's it's like he's someone who has a reputation as like a gaffe machine. And I think a right. lot of people forget that part of that is because he's struggled with stuttering his entire life. Right. But even when he gaffes, he always so this is something I never got to do. He always he accepts the gaffe. He mm-hmm. acknowledges it and he laughs at himself and then he moves on. He's never he's not one of the people who's like, I never said that. Or one of the people who says, well, that's right now. If I said it, then that's yeah. reality now. He didn't he, learn the the. Uh, so I think the, the where that lesson came from was uh, uh, George Bush senior got just pilloried for saying, uh, uh, you know, no new taxes. Yeah. And the lesson they learned was if you make a mistake, double down. Yeah, never admit it. Double yeah. down, never. You know, and it's and and, and that was. I, I vastly prefer a politician will say, "I have changed my opinion on that." I have, yeah. you know, or well, I, and I this, misspoke. You know, when I worked happens. at the when I worked at the Daily Show, there was a lot of we did some of this. Where it was like going after people for changing their positions, but like you would watch Meet the Press, and the entire show, the entire interview from Tim Russert would be, who's dead now, so I shouldn't speak ill of him, I guess. But the whole interview would be. You said this back then. Now you're saying this now, and they'd have to explain why they hadn't changed. And it's like, I don't know, dude. Like, if they're if they're heading in the right direction, yeah, just let it happen. I, I you learned know? something. I no longer hold that position. Yeah, good. And, you're a human who is growing and moving on. Like we and, should be able to encourage growth rather yeah. than. I can't believe you used to hold this position that is now unpopular. And yeah, with, it was popular then. And I feel I, like Joe Biden is an example that we're like, there's bills that he sponsored earlier in his career when he was still already an old man but it's not like he was like i was young i didn't know it's like you're in your 50s but but he now doesn't stand by at those positions anymore and i feel like that's partly because he's always been very good at seeing where the country is going and and following it or leading it slightly but not well, too much a like, little ahead that he was the guy in the in the bar in the obama administration who was like we got to get out of afghanistan and the guy who was like yep. we gotta let gay people get married and like that that he's always like a little bit ahead i feel yep. like but that that the i was gonna say the thing i always want to do when he when obama and biden left office i wanted to pitch a talk show hosted by joe biden because i was like this guy can talk to anybody oh like i God. imagine him having a conversation on this episode, he's going to talk to Barack Obama. On this episode, he's going to talk to his mailman. On this episode, yeah. he's going to talk to uh, like a big author. On this episode, he's going to talk to his barber. And like, yeah. and the and the thing that struck me that I always was so endearing to me was there's that that clip of him where he's there's a a man who can't walk and he's like he's like let's hear it for him stand up so the people can see you oh what am I doing what am I doing like that he's and he totally he, takes it and totally like, takes it and I like, messed oh. up like does yeah. the thing does this like. Come on, like yep. the, he doesn't literally do that, but that that we all do. And so I so reading the analysis and just seeing, of course, then I made the mistake of looking on Fox News and they're like, oh, all no. the, it's they went to a diner in North Carolina and found people who don't like him, but uh, which is not surprising. But I, but like so, I've been kind of uh, not gorging, but that's been something that's been easy to distract me with is like reading about reading his good reviews, you know. Yeah. So oh yeah, well, and I love. I mean, this is a guy who out negotiated the Republican Party 
from the pulpit in the middle of the State of the Union address. Yeah. We should be, I mean, that was an amazing maneuver. Like, oh, okay, so we all agree on this now? Good. I, I mean, <laughs> nobody has ever had a State of the Union address where they had that much impact on policy. No, <laughs> I agree. And it's, I think because he's, he is not, he's a president who I think maybe, and I'm sure this is wrong. All presidents think of themselves as historic figures and that's why they run for president. But he's a president who doesn't carry himself as if he yes. thinks of himself as a historic figure, that he thinks of himself as a guy who is like, you know, that that Frank Capra, Capricorn type thing where it's like, not Capricorn, the, the astronomical sign, but what they used to call Capricorn, like corniness, where yeah. it's like, where it's like, well, I'm just a regular Joe and I'm going to roll up my sleeves yep. and I'll get in there. That stupid boost mobile commercial from years ago where they're like, what if firefighters ran the government and they're like clean water who wants clean water done voted and i'm like come on that's not right. how anything right. can work that's you can't just it. say clean water. like what's the regulatory uh, organization like how do you enforce that but right. the uh but that he's but he does carry himself i feel like as a guy who yep. feels more like that and so well, i wonder does he look himself in the mirror in the morning and say to himself you know what's great they're gonna underestimate me today or does he genuinely not see it? But you know there are people on his staff who are going, you know what's great about Joe Biden? They're going to underestimate him today. I think he probably <laughs> sees it. I think he's he's someone who is, I think, very aware of yeah. what's going on around him politically, at least. But he's someone who, but just that, so when he goes into the State of the Union, I think there's something very refreshing about a president who goes in and is not like, I'm going to give a speech. People are going to quote it. He goes in and, give, and he says, I think in his mind, every speech is an opportunity for uh, persuasion. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a book called called um, uh, what's that called Lincoln's uh, tragic pragmatism I think is what it's called and it talks a lot about it in how the the differences between politics as persuasion and politics as force and I think Biden is like every speech I do is an opportunity for me to persuade somebody and yeah. so I'm gonna I'm gonna use the State of the Union as a persuasive event not as a uh, this is me make, taking my stand for what right. history is going to say about me or anything like that. Yeah. So he could, so he could be really loose and like, yeah. there's not very much that's particularly quotable in the speech, but when you come away from it, you're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That like you get a feeling from the guy, you know? Yeah. So. And also he actually got, you know, I mean, he managed to change the bargaining position of the entire Republican house in the midst of his speech. Or at least, or at least to highlight it since he's, yeah. since they're, well, I, they're a mess have anyway. You, have you know? seen the interviews with uh, Rick Scott? the two he's done since no oh well I've, oh my gosh i know that he's i read about that he's like my plan doesn't say that when oh, like it, it, it does that's what it was all about dumbest tour in the history of politics where mm -hmm. he's going on shows and saying i didn't say the thing i said and then the hosts are saying but here it's in your plan and he's saying to the public the thing that you are seeing in front of you is not what i meant because I meant something. I mean, it's it's humiliating. Well, and, and like, it's and it's the kind of thing where he could say, "I meant that then, but I don't. I don't mean. What? You know what? That was the plan then, but now America's in a different place." So, because yeah. when he, you know, he did the kind of thing where it's easy to put out that plan when you know it's not going to get passed. Yeah, and you and you, it's just a way for you to outflank Mitch McConnell or whatever. Right. But that. But then it's it's the same thing that it's like everyone and everyone and their grandmother said after the the midterm election with with uh and with after the uh oh no, it was after roe v wade about how it's the dog that caught the car where it's like you got what you wanted but now you can't yeah. handle it and that's rick scott with that plan where yeah. it was, whereas mike lee they were you know showing these videos of uh senator mike lee of uh utah i believe i think so yeah you know he's loudly saying i want to get rid of these things but he's got this really 
clever uh, political strategy right now, which is shut up. Like <laughs> just you nobody... don't have to go on every TV show and defend yourself. He's just disappeared. And Rick Scott's like, no, I need to go out there and tell people that I'm not one of the people Biden was referencing when he clearly is. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. Why are you doing this to yourself? And I. This is how I like my fascists in a bunker at the end of the war. Like, the, you know, I think, like, I think you're I think you're you're writing their obituary a, a little early, a little, but maybe, but that is this, I would much rather them be in disarray. This is what yes. I you know. Well, that's and that's and it's certainly after, you know, years and years of being told that the Democratic Party is disorganized and can't get its act together. Yep. It is something very I, that I feel bad about the the pleasure I get from the from the pain that they're feeling, you know, of the schadenfreude of seeing them, yep. seeing the Republicans now fighting against each other but it's like uh they're reaping what they sowed you know yeah, it's not they have I mean, no one to blame themselves. To me is the perfect epitome of of what they've sown you know they have said we don't care about the truth yeah well there are consequences to that you're going to end up having to deal with your own liars uh it's going to catch up with you and i'm like yeah let's keep him in the news every day mm -hmm. go ahead you know make him the face of the gop because this is what they've decided to be this is not what they were i understand that there are a lot of republicans who are really frustrated going this isn't what i signed up for but i'm like no you did you well, just at a certain they, it's it's know? like you're on a bus that's going to a garbage dump and each stop along the way they're like garbage dump in 10 stops and you're like i don't want to get off here this i don't feel comfortable in this neighborhood garbage dump in nine stops well this we're this isn't where i live garbage dump in eight stops and eventually you end up at the garbage dump yep. and it's like you had plenty of, you had plenty of shots to get off that bus so you're still on it the and, great thing about fascism is you can stop it's not an intrinsic characteristic you could well that's say, that's the thing i'm I feel, not going to do this anymore it's wrong i don't know if you can because at that point you're going up against fundamental laws of human psychology yeah. where it's like it's very hard for people to say that they're wrong and it's hard yeah. for them to admit and it's hard it can look at how hard it is for people to admit that their ancestors might have done something yeah. wrong, and now imagine how hard it is to admit you did it. Again, I, this the I, for anyone anyone watching, you can see that I'm clearly at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington D.C. Yeah. So the the it's obviously the Republicans were not always this way, and I'm I'm at my one of my favorite holidays is coming up on Sunday, which is Abraham Lincoln's birthday because he's the greatest man who ever lived. But the it's a yeah, there's it, it's very sad to me that there's like a I remember being in Washington D.C. and seeing. There's that poster that gets updated every. There's a guy who makes this poster where all the Democratic presidents are playing poker together, and a poster where all the Republican presidents are playing poker together. And in the one with Trump, Lincoln's back is to the camera, and I was like, <laughs> "It has to be. It's got to yeah. be because you know he is disgusted that he's sitting at the same table oh, as yeah. Donald Trump. Like this is. I, there's no way. There's no way to to paint a picture of the two of them together and have them be buddies and not have it seem immediately just, oh, just yeah. grotesque. You know. I have a colleague who uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, was teaching in his uh, AP US history class. He allowed his students to do this art project where they would study one of the presidents and they would paint the president on the wall. Like this is all had to be replaced when he moved rooms. Mm -hmm. uh, they were these fantastic paintings of all of the various presidents. And, you know, this is a teacher at a public school. He's not weighing in, taking sides. So he allowed this student who was a, you know, diehard Trump fan to be the one to paint Trump. Well, the kid painted him in the opposite direction as every other president. So mm -hmm. right away, it's like, here's this, here's all these presidents looking dignified. And then here's this one who's off. And then he painted him this very bright orange. And it was like, that was not a choice of the teachers. That was the kid. <laughs> and then he gave him a tie, a red tie that like, like dangled down to his feet. It's no, clear. worse. It curved out. 
and then it kind of was fluttering in the wind in such a way that it clearly looked like a penis. There was no, <laughs> like you walked in and you went, oh, what am I seeing? And so the uh, the teacher very gently says to this kid, you know, I don't know, you're noticing what's going on there with the tie, but you might want to do something. And the kid's response is, oh, I can see how maybe that's problematic. And he paints the underside of the, the bottom part of the tie beneath it so it's just the testicles like now he's made it that much worse and you know both of us were just like we didn't do it like you know you walk into the room and you're like oh that that horror show happened and it was from a trump fan and that is just going to be here for you know two years or whatever and one of these things is not like the other but you're right i mean this is a path that was chosen you know there's no yeah lots of places to get off the bus there's no you had they have plenty of warning signs you know it's for for all the people who are like they do that metaphor about the frog in the boiling water, which is not true. Not like true. Once it gets hot, a frog will leave, you know, right. but it's like, if it, but it's a good metaphor, even though, and it's like, yeah, that's the, it, that wasn't, the water didn't get hot that slowly. Like no. it had, it was, it was real noticeable, you know, yeah. but, yeah. but also there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, I, I always think about if there was a, I don't always think about, it, I think about other things. It's not like this is the only thing on my mind, but I've often <laughs> thought about trying to the, the struggle with me inside is to try to put myself in the position of someone that I either disagree with or dis or hate so that I can not become someone I don't like, which is right. being too self-righteous about stuff. So it's like, everyone's a human being. Everybody has their reasons. Oftentimes, sometimes the reason is that they're dumb, but yeah. usually often it's not. And that I often think to myself, if there was someone who was as corrupt as Trump and as boorish and hate, like toxic and mean and greedy and as just everything that fairy tales tell us not to be, you know, and, but he was using his, that power to enforce, you know, renewable energies or to strengthen the social safety net. How would I feel about it? Would I excuse right. his, his behavior then? And it's like, Democrats kind of had that with Lyndon Johnson in a sense. I mean, aside from the Vietnam war, but like, it's, I don't know if there was a guy who was as bad as Trump, but he was like, we got to replace all those that coal with solar and windmills. Everybody's driving electric cars. Like we got to get the temperature back to normal. There might, you know, do I, would I have, I like to think that I would be like, no, this guy is terrible, but I can't say it for sure. So. Well, and a lot of the stuff about Bill Clinton's sex life came out late enough that we didn't have to go through that process during the election. It came out during his second term. Yeah. But, but after he was... the fact, we do have to kind of go, would that would I have allowed that to change my thinking or would I have said, but he's doing a good job and he's our guy and therefore I'm going to look beyond the evidence, which is pretty. I mean, that's that's certainly the, that's certainly the choice that my parents generation took because yeah. my parents were die were loved Clinton. They were diehard Clinton people and they still are like, oh, the economy was so good and blah, blah, blah. But I I, I, I feel like I'm uh, because I wasn't a voter at that time. I can, I can, and also I'm looking back because I was a child at the time. I'm looking yeah. back from years later and I'm like, you know what? I don't think he was a very good president because yeah, yeah. he did a, he did a bunch of things that were like time bombs that he, that he was yeah. planting, like overturning, like a, uh, repealing the Glass-Steagall Act and like passing the Defense of Marriage or signing the Defense of Marriage Act. These things where I'm like, this, this, I mean, defense, signing the Defense of Marriage Act was always bad, but like, in my opinion, you know, in my, in the well, opinion of someone who- tell. Was. Yeah, yeah, and Donuts Hotel, and the fact that Donuts Hotel was like a, was seen as a step forward at the time. But yeah. in 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 my opinion, as someone who just thinks that everybody should be able to love whoever they want, it's uh, it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know what? I don't think he was a good president anyway. And I've 
I've argued with my wife and my parents many times about this, where I'm like, I think he should have been convicted. Then Al Gore goes into the 2000 election as an incumbent. And it's a it's a different story. Different but the story. and I kind of don't think I don't know that we have Trump getting away with everything he got away with if Clinton gets MP. Yeah. And my dad is always like, yeah, but what he lied about was an affair. Everyone would lie about that. And I'm like, I don't have affairs. Like, yeah. I don't yeah. I don't lie about it. Yes. Like, uh, no, no affairs with interns in my past. That's the, not, you know, yeah, the same way that. I'm, you know, I'm, my main day job is as a television writer and I try, I pitch TV shows and they usually don't sell because most TV shows don't sell. don't sell. And I'm like, and then terrible news comes out about popular showrunners. And I'm like, give me a shot. I've never groomed anyone. Like right. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, right. I'm, I'm, I've never assaulted anyone I work with or treated them or I've never asked someone who worked for me out. And then when they said, no, I've made their life yeah, like horrible them from getting a job later. Yeah. So give me a chance to run a show. Yeah. So it's like yeah. the, so this is, this is the exact opposite of what I was saying before where I'm like, everybody's human let's be this is the part of me that's like well i don't do any of that stuff like how well, do, and i'm my, the same way i the the framing that you know is helpful to me sometimes and not helpful is you know i i, I like to think what is the thing that my great-grandchildren will look back on me with shame like, oh yeah you know that is i think that's a good framing to go you know our great-grandkids are going to go you ate meat that's barbaric, yeah, you know, that, and so gonna, remembering I, we are not going to be the, the paragons of virtue that we like to conceive of ourselves now. Like they will look back on us and go, that, that was appalling. You lived in a country that had the death penalty and you weren't screaming. Like, yeah, you know. well, ha- like they'll be if they remember history, because that's the thing is I find that that people either remember history a lot or they don't think about it at yeah. all. But I, I've that's a conversation I've had with my wife where I'm like, what's the thing? Because we talk about things our parents say that. We know our parents mean well, but we they things they say that are un, you know inadvertently offensive. I'm like, what's the thing that we're gonna have where our kids are the thing our kids take for granted? The way that I take the existence and the rights of trans people right. for granted. It's just right. that like I I have friends who are trans. Like it's something that's been a part of my life since I was in college. Like it's not a thing that is it's not a thing that's alien to me. It's not a thing that's right. that's strange to me. But to my parents, it's clearly and my parents who had friends who were gay. And had so and understood that, but trans is something that is yep. they they have trouble wrapping their minds around. I'm like, what's the thing that is going to be so like blatantly obvious to our children and our grandchildren right. that we're gonna that is going to be a new concept to us that we struggle with something that we and I'm like, I'm, and uh, I was I was pitching lots of different things. To my wife she hates this game. She does not like me to pitch what I think <laughs> we're going to be wrong about in the future. And I started talking about like at a certain point. And it seems like it's going to happen sooner and sooner. So maybe we won't be that old when it happens. At a certain point, if artificial intelligence evolves to the point of where it is making a case for sentience and it's saying that I feel and I think yeah. I'm a, I'm an I'm an individual and I want rights that are commis are uh, what's the word I'm looking for yeah, consistent with that with other commiserate with, right. with and uh and that's and she was like I am offended that you would ever compare machine rights to human beings and i'm like well that's it we found it like that's the, that's, that's the, the line like right? that's the line and so yeah. i know someday my uh my sons are going to be like hanging out with their computer friends and i'll yeah. be like they're not or if we're, they're not real people they're not real people yeah or like if if my son is in love with a machine or something like that and i'm like you're gonna marry a toaster and he's yeah. like dad do not say that. like i feel like that's <laughs> yes. that's possible or i used to always yeah. i used to think about if alien if we were at war with aliens and the war doesn't go on forever and eventually we we re, we make trade ties with them. Like aliens move to Earth, they open up restaurants where they serve their food, and the and that like my grandkids being like, oh yeah yeah, we're gonna go to the 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 like we're gonna go to the the three net uh, 
a restaurant, me going bugs. I'm not going to eat bug food. We, yeah. I'm not going to eat or eat with bugs. And be like, Dad, the war, Granddad, the war was a long time ago. You can't call them bugs anymore. Like that's right. yes. There's going to be something like that. And so, well, and I, I, I wonder. I've, I've speculated about this with you know students too. I wonder if like my generation's ideas about monogamy are going to be mm. seen as so archaic, where people are going to be going, what you know, thruples are like legal now and taxed in the same way as any you know possibly marriage and i'm going to be going but they still make me uncomfortable like you know and i have to go yeah people can arrange their love lives as they see fit but you know i think that's one of those ones where we're very much stuck in this pattern of this is the way relationships have to be formed and you know i think our kids are going to go whatever dad (laughs) yeah i think it's something like that i think yeah it's probably going to happen and it's I think that I, I'm going to give us a pass on that one. I think we're going to be, I think that's going to happen. I think we're going to be more okay with that one. Maybe it's just sure. me that like uh, the, cause I have friends who are in, in, you know, polyamorous relationships. And the thing that always gets me about it is I'm like, how do you remember everybody's birthdays? Uh-huh. Like, it seems like so that's much, exhausting. so much logistics. Yep. This friend of mine who they were, they were married at the time, but they also had a boyfriend. Then they were started seeing another person and, their husband had a had also had a had a girlfriend and I was like, how do you keep track of whose house your stuff is at? And I feel like that's the kind of thing that, yeah, and eventually I'll make a I'll say something like that in the future and it will be an offensive thing to say. Exactly. And and like, and I'll be and I'll have a moment where I'm like, what? But I'm a nice guy. And then I'll say and then I'll have that. I'll leave that moment. And I'll go to the next moment where I'm like, yeah, I guess you know what? Like that's you know. Uh, that's that's probably an insensitive way for me to talk about the way they organize who they love and what right. they're passionate about. But yes. like, uh, but the, that, yeah, it's going to be something the, like the transitional that. liberals who are like, I am totally fine with the way you want to structure this. It's not for me. And, you know, a generation from now, it's not it's not for me will sound offensive. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, it's only so I mentioned Abraham Lincoln earlier and hopefully I don't know how much you edited this, edit this show. So maybe you didn't edit that out, but, uh, or if you, maybe if you did, I'll, I'll sell people. It was, I mentioned it earlier. The, and the thing that I am so that I find so in, in one of the things I, one of the many things I find inspiring about him, I think he's, he's, I just find him to be an incredible person. And it was, I, it was one of the most shattering moments of my life when I went to visit his tomb and it really struck me that I would never meet him that yeah. since he died 116 years before I was born, that I would never meet him. But that the people point to like, well, at this time in his life, he was in favor of, you know, recolonizing, you know, in, uh, freed um, enslaved people to Africa. Yeah. And it's like that he was someone who was very aware in himself that there was a rational part of his mind and an irrational part of his mind. And there were things that he kind of knew. I feel this way about this. And it's not the correct way to feel about it, but it's the way I feel about it. And it is my... It is my job, in a sense, to bring myself to the point where my immediate instincts, my immediate reflex feelings are more in line with what I rationally know to be logical and true. And my job as president is to push the country in that direction, knowing that it can't be forced too fast. And this is in the middle of a civil war, even. And he's still like, they can't that. So he's already it's already a pretty lost a son. And he's I mean, yeah. And so. And I end that we don't know where he would have been had he finished out a second term yeah. or afterwards, you know, but that like the idea that recognizing in himself that there is something that he feels that he knows is not good, that is not accurate. And being able to live in that divided space and try to move towards the better one. So I feel like that's that's the best that's the best way that we can try to be as people is to be like, 
this is how I feel. But I can know rationally that that's not, it's not the, the most caring or not the most accepting, not the most tolerant, not the most progressive or not the most fair way to feel. So I'm going to have to try to figure out how to push myself from feeling this to the way that I think about it. And I think there's, it's hard for people to make that division between the way they think and the way they feel because it sucks. <laughs> like, yeah. Cause you feel bad all the time. Cause yeah. you, like, cause you feel bad about feeling the thing that you know, is not the but right way to feel. It also can know? be liberating. I, there, there's this quote uh, by Wittgenstein. That's one of my favorites. And I still have never memorized it because I'm terrible at memorizing, but to paraphrase, mm -hmm. it's something along the lines of there is no language that has ever devised a, uh, a statement that is, I believe falsely in the present first person indicative. Uh huh. Um, and once you kind of realize, like that was one of those ones where I just like it took a long time to sink in. Like I currently believe things that are wrong. I can't identify those. I can't express that in in language. But logically, I have to know the fact that I have been wrong about things in the past. The, you know, I will be wrong about things in the future. So I'm wrong about things in the present that I, I don't, just yeah, don't know that what I'm, they are that I'm unaware. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a, that. Yeah, that's a mind blower because it's yeah. like that you everyone because nobody the idea that at this moment in time you figured it all out, right. like you got it all is untenable because, yeah, there's no one who's never been wrong about something, yeah. you know, and well, and that's my biggest knock on like, you know, Fox people who are getting their news from Fox. I'll I've talked with them where I've said. My problem is not that Fox presents information. I mean, I have lots of problems with the way Fox presents information, but there are no retractions. Do you really believe these yeah. people are never wrong? If mm -hmm. they're never saying yesterday we shared this fact and it turned out to be incorrect and we are owning that, then you are saying I am turning over my 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 you know uh, belief to this group that is presenting themselves as though they're infallible. I don't yeah. trust people who think they're infallible. <laughs> like, I know, but there's a lot of people who do trust. There's a lot of people who are like attracted to confidence. There's the part, yeah. it's the, it's the, I, it's hard to tell from a Zoom video, but I'm a very short man. And I'm constantly angry at the fact that there's still the part in the back of the human brain that tr naturally trusts a tall person more than a short person. Oh. That is like, oh, big, bigger, stronger, closer to sky. Yeah, authority. Like this, oh, this good. I like this. And it's, and I feel like there is there's still that part of people's brains that is more attracted to a confident wrong person than to a person who is right but it allows doubt to enter their system yeah. because it's like it just feels better to be to be confident to know something right. than to allow yourself to doubt and admit that you don't know something and people are people are feelings based creatures you know yeah. there's a I I, I the thing that always kept me away from economics, other than the fact that I'm not that interested in it, but I'm more interested in now than I was, but when yeah. I was young, I was not interested, is that I, I like was... to read, when my son was very, very young, I would read to him from The Economist uh -huh. because it would put him to sleep. And he got to the point where he called them my magic article. He'd go, read me one of the magic articles. Because they knocked <laughs> him magically out. Visit? Oh, yep. that's a great... Yep. Oh, what I a love great, The Economist. What a great trick. That's it's the most conservative source that I tend to keep going back to, but it's really good journalism. Yeah, but there's a... There's a but in and that that kind of fallacy in economics that I feel like economics has moved past now. But the idea of people as rational actors who oh, not yeah. only yeah, can that's... not only always work in their interest, but that can even recognize their interest. Yeah. And like people are not they're not thinking creatures for the most part. They're feeling creatures. Even I say myself as someone who lives in my own head too much, but I live in my feelings more than I live in my thoughts or ideas too much. Um it's funny that they're reading to get to sleep, but that used to happen. My wife has always had sleep problems and she'd be like, read me something 
read me one of your history books so that I can go to sleep. She'd be like, read me the power broker. She knows I love Robert Caro. I love his work. I love the power broker. I've started my, my older son who's nine. He was like, can you start reading me the power broker? And now every now and then I'll read him like a page because the pages are long. So it takes a long time to get through them. And, but he's kind of into it, which I'm liking, but I started reading her the power broker and she was like, it's too interting. It's too well-written. Yep. Never mind. Yep. I thought it was yep. going to be boring, but the, and then I'll read her, you know, we've sure. been reading, a. uh, I'll read out loud to her, uh, Charles Dickens, and it's been taking us many months to get through Bleak House just because it's a long book, and it, we and we it's don't always me. get to read to each other regularly, so we've forgotten who most of the characters are and how they're connected. So she falls asleep <laughs> to that because it's like it's just she's just hearing random gossip at a certain yeah. point, you know. Yeah, it's like picking up Lame is in the middle, like that, yeah, that yeah, exactly. Out. <laughs> yeah, but but that uh, it's it's tough. Like it's not easy to be a human being, and that's me saying that as someone who has had so many breaks in my life, yeah. and for the most part. The at like survival is very easy for through the luck the luck that I've had of where I was born and who I was yeah, born, being born as here, the, right yeah being born in the United States being born in the time that I was born being born to parents who were at the economic level that they were at to parents who were supportive of my having a career in the arts you know it helps that I come from a long line of of frustrated writers like yeah. my mother both my grandmothers all wanted to be writers and instead became librarians I guess that's not true my father's mother was a writer but she wrote like educational supplements to New York times and, and scripts for, for slides and slide film strips and things like that. Uh, but she wanted to be a, you know, a John Updike style, you know, fiction writer. Um, so that, that helped, but knowing that I like that, I, that I got well, a show. And, and we're both of Jewish descent and we're born in a time when whiteness had been afforded to us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's and that, huge. That born at a time when until recently, at least, I could take it for granted that... that right, it's actually been but... worse later in my life. I'm yeah. more anxious about it now. Yeah, like, I'm more Earlier in my life, I was like, I, if I don't bring it up, nobody hates me for it. Oh, wait, yeah. there are a lot of people who hate oh, me. Oh, it, it turns out they do, yeah. yeah. And uh, they're much more vocal about it now. I wonder why yeah, that is. Yeah, but, it's, but, uh, it's been terrifying. But uh, the... And that... Uh, I was going to say... And that I, have, I, I... So I was able to go to... I was able to afford to go to college at a at a school that where I could study writing and where I could game the system a little bit so I could get out of school earlier than I would have otherwise. Cause I kind of raced through the program I was in. And then that I, as I was graduating school, a production assistant position happened to open up at what at my favorite television show. And then that the, the host of that show. And when I joined it, this is the daily show when the, ho the when I joined it, the staff was relatively small. John had Stewart had been the host for about three years already. But the, the staff was still relatively small, that I joined it at a time when a production assistant who was a Jewish guy from New Jersey could get time with the host who was also a Jewish guy from New right. Jersey. And so I kind of like, uh, you know, and that I saw so that I rose through the ranks of that show and I worked very hard and I took advantage of opportunities. But I've always been aware of the, my luck in being able to intern there that I could afford to do that. I, that was, oh, what a great semester. That was one of the best, that was my favorite semester of school where. I was work. I was interning at the Daily Show three days a week. So I would have one day, one day of classes a week because I was almost done with my program. Three days I was inter interning at the Daily Show, and two days I was working at Barnes Noble, and I was supporting myself oh off gosh. of my Barnes Noble salary. And I had one day where I could do whatever, and that I usually just spent sitting in in my room watching movies all day. Right. So like, so I was getting zero sunlight at the time. But it was like, oh, this is fantastic. I really, I felt like, feel like I'm in the world, you know. And I'm all, and the, uh, but that I, I've. Even with all of those lucky breaks on top, lucky break on top of lucky break on top of lucky break, take it down a notch because of being gifted with uh, with 
extreme bouts of depression that I don't love. Yeah. Uh, then I, and then I, but then the lucky breaks take take up my average quite a bit more. That even with all that, survival is still not an easy or fun thing. Just yeah. living in the world and being a person. And so, if you someone who doesn't have those lucky breaks, yeah. even the survival is that challenging. So it's like just hard to be a person. I mean, it's easier to be a person than it is to be like a polar bear, but you know, yeah. but it's still depending on the well, person, depending on the polar bear, I guess. We're but. aware of that. Then we can, you know, give grace to people when we're going, Oh, this, this thing that just seems like horrible hatefulness that you think is very possibly fear. You know, you have yeah, not yeah. had all the breaks I had. The world is suddenly very scary to you. You know, somebody who is, you didn't know that somebody could even be trans and you found out about that. And also you're struggling to survive. That's scarier. Well, and that's what it's, I have talking the luxury about... of going, that's totally fine because it doesn't hurt me because I'm safe. Yeah, is that, and we were talking about anti-Semitism before that. There's a, there's a thing I want to talk about in this joke writing book because there's a, there's an, you know, people say like, you don't punch down, you punch up, which is, you should not punch down, you punch up in jokes, but it's not true. People punch down all the time. Like that was Donald Trump's key was that he was very funny if you laughed at someone yep. punching down at people, yep. you know, and his joke structure and his joke delivery is like, there was one joke he had that I did think was very funny where he, when he was running for reelection and he was in, I forgot what town it was like, you know, Skokie or some, some town, some city that's Skokie level. And he was like, Skokie, I need your support. You think I'd be here if I didn't need your support? I wouldn't be here. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. that is such a, when you, when a comedian goes to a town and they get on that town, pardon my language, yeah. I'm sorry. When they, they go to that town and they, and they roast that town, you know, yeah. to, to like, that's what he was doing. But so you can't, so people punch down all the time, but that the, it's not always clear cut where it's like, so I'm Jewish. You have people who are vocally anti-Semitic. If I make a joke about them, it seems like I am punching up. I'm punching at someone who is trying to oppress me, but I am also someone in the, what I call the lower upper middle class. Cause I'm trying to give myself the, as not make myself sound like I'm doing too good. Right. And who is makes it living, writing jokes, owns his own home, has union health insurance, you know, has a lot of things that I, that the people who feel very extreme anti-Semitism cannot take for granted. Maybe they don't have union health insurance. Maybe they don't own their home. Maybe they don't, maybe their job stinks. Maybe they feel no control over their career or, or over their family. And so who's really punching down and who's really punching up? It's hard to tell. And so it's, and that's one of the, I think one of the reasons that as I, uh, as I get older, I've been drawn, I have this kind of like love hate relationship or this, this tango dance to towards and away from political comedy, because uh, you feel like you want to be doing something. You want to be doing something to try to push things in the direction you want, but it's really complicated. And Oftentimes, when you try to push in one direction, the person who's pushing back pushes harder in the opposite direction. And so it's like the so during the Trump presidency, it was really I just really loved the fact that I was writing for Mystery Science Theater 3000 and then Housebroken. I was writing robots telling jokes about bad movies and dogs telling jokes yeah. about poop. And it was like, great. This is this is yeah. I don't I don't I don't need to be I, I can experience politics in this as an American citizen who cares about his country rather than as someone whose job is to take the news and digest it and make it funny and then uh, and then present it to somebody in a way that will hopefully make a point about it in a funny way. It was just like, yeah, I needed well, also to not feel obligated it. to do a lot of digesting that would have been toxic. Like that yes. would have been really hard on your soul to go, oh, it, I must watch all of this so that I can like that. I just felt so bad for like the PAs on The Daily Show where everybody's like, oh, it's so much easier when, you know, the, the situation is so crazy to be uh, writing comedy. And I'm like, that sounds miserable to have to watch 
Fox News for 12 hours a day so that you can find the gag reel. Like that's brutal. Yeah, it's really it's really it was it's really not pleasant. And uh the there's yeah, and it, the, yeah, I I uh my friends were still at the Daily Show when Trump was president. I was like I would I would you know tease them and I'd be like you must it must be so easy. Guy writes right. itself. The jokes write itself. This yeah. guy you must love it. You probably want him to win re-election. It's just lots of easy material for you because I remembered people saying that to me when Bush was president. Yeah. When I was I wasn't yet a writer on the show, but I was a segment producer on the show. And people being like, oh, you're for The Daily Show? You must love George Bush. He gives you so much material. And it was like, no, it's horrible. Like, I don't like I don't like living in that. And it's not pleasant. And I would so much rather be scrambling for stories to do jokes about and not have two wars going on than to have these wars going on with, like, blatant hypocrisies and ironies and things like that. It was uh, – talk about, talk about procrastinating writing. You couldn't at that show because the turnaround was so fast. So but it was fast. very – but it was really like, a, but you wanted to because you'd be like, all right, I guess I'll watch Fox and Friends. One of the, one yeah. of the one of the great writers at that show, Tim Carvel, who has run John Oliver's show for since that started for many years, and he was he was the head writer of the show before I was head writer of the Daily Show. Uh, every morning he'd watch Fox and Friends, and I was always like, I feel so bad for your husband that he's got to sit there yeah. <laughs> and watch Fox and Friends with you in the, the morning while you're God. having breakfast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I I talk to my students about how the you know and and you can correct me if if if, if I'm wrong, but my understanding uh, of where comedy comes from from evolutionary psychology is our ancient ancient ancestors, primate ancestors, smiled at someone to say I'm going to bite you, and evolved into creatures who said we're smiling at each other to say we're going to bite him, and oh, so all comedy comes from this sense of. You know, I tell them it's two things. It's cruelty and surprise. Every joke is just cruelty and surprise in different measures. And it's a way of saying we are all in this together at this person's expense. And so how do we do comedy that elevates and isn't just I've shocked you by being cruel to him? You know, and that is it is a very, very I, I am not a comedy writer. It's incredibly difficult <laughs> to yeah, figure out hard. the ethics the, the, of well, the comedy. Thing the thing you always feel about that you always hear about comedy. It's, inter it's an interesting theory. I don't know if I totally buy into it, but it's an interesting theory. I've been reading all these books about to research this book I'm working on now, which is called it's, if it doesn't change the title, it's going to be called joke farming. So it's uh so that'll be coming out from university, university of Chicago press. Every time I try to say university of Chicago press, I stumble over it. It's terrible. Uh, uh, that's going to be coming out. I don't know. Hopefully in sometime in 2024. I don't know. It, I don't know how long it takes to put out. I, I run books. a small press. I know it, it takes, takes a while. A year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, that I finally got the, uh, the, the uh, unauthorized book about Deadwood that I paid a Kickstarter for four or five years ago. You know, it, it takes a long, long time to publish things. University but, uh, of Chicago press is faster than that. They're faster. You know, we're, we're smaller than them. We're faster than them. They're <laughs> medium sized. And then the big four, you're looking at years. Like. Yeah. Well, that when I would, when I had picture, when I had picture books coming out, it would be like, the art's done, the writing's done, the layouts are done. Now we just wait for a year, and it was like, yeah. I don't understand. Well, why, <laughs> why are we waiting for a year? Yeah, and, and we, I think we can say, hey, I can talk with the author and say, are you willing to forego this one review we might get if we give it to him a year out and put it out in six months? Are you willing to forego the other two we could get at six months? We could put it out in three months, and they're like. Yeah, put it out into the world. <laughs> yeah. The big four are like, nope, we've got a pattern. This is the way we do it. We're going to get it in those people's hands and we're going to give it to them a year in advance. Yeah. Okay. And really it's for, it really is for a couple of potential reviews. But um, you never know. You never know what's going to, what's going to yeah. get people's attention. But Well, and those but reviews may make a big difference. You don't know. That's true. 
But so I've been reading all these books about like kind of humor theory where everyone has their theory as to how humor developed. And I've realized that it's not super helpful to me as a, as a working comedy writer to know any of that. The same way that like, there's probably for a, for an athlete, there's probably some interest in knowing how the human body evolved to the place, but like, it doesn't really help them do more reps that way, you know? Nope. I have a friend who took a great class. uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. University of Syracuse, I believe on the, uh, the philosophy of humor. And she was like, it was the least funny class I have (laughs) ever taken. Like it isn't, let's ruin jokes together. (laughs) <laughs> which which this book I'm sure will I'm gonna it's hopefully gonna be a funny book because I'll write funny things in it yeah but I'm certainly gonna be dissecting jokes to the point where I, that's I mean different you're not trying to say let's let's dissect this joke to the point where I have made it not funny that's like, true this class was let's destroy humor <laughs> you know, like, this is more how do we let's take apart the watch so we can see how the gears work and then you can and then hopefully you'll be able to build a watch by the so end you can of it. build it you know? right that's yeah. very different than a yeah philosophy of humor class is let's make it not funny <laughs> that's that's like in in at myu i took a, a, a class called american film violence that was a cinema studies class and i was like oh this is a, not a class about enjoying movies this is a class about taking them apart and making them not movies anymore. Like they're just, that they're all just sociocultural texts. And I was like, no, I'm not that interested in that. But uh, the thing I was going to say, the thing you hear about all the time is like the need for kind of feel good comedy or upbeat comedy or positive comedy. And it's very difficult. And it's unless you just exist in a world of pure kind of silliness and pure whimsy. And I feel like I I just reread Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, which aside from the parts where he talks about how much sex he was having at different points in his life is, <laughs> is the best, one of the best books, if not the best book I've read about what it's like to be a working comedian, not in the sense of like, and then I went to this club and it was in these, and there were these things, but in the sense of like, how do I build an act? How do I take a comedic idea and develop it? How do I say to myself, how do I make myself a unique comic voice and work that? And I think it's such a, it's been a val- very valuable book for me in that way. But he talks well, it's about, good it's that like he's good at that because there, I mean, you know, often, you know, birds are not ornithologists. Like there's yeah, yeah. A, a point at which we're often not good at describing why it is we do what we do. Yeah, I, I was, uh, you know, I know you're a Marx Brothers fan. Have you read the, yeah, the uh, Groucho's letters? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you don't get the sense that this was a person who was sitting there going, I'm going to, in my letters to you, analyze my craft. Like he was just incredibly witty, yeah. you know, and, and I don't know that he would have been particularly insightful about what made his jokes work. They just came to him. Like, well, I think that's why there's a lot of stuff about like the rule of threes or like funny right. comedy K sounds. And there's like a, enough truth to it that you can right. live with it. But I think that is a way of people who are funny but haven't analyzed it and don't want to analyze it necessarily explaining to other people what makes why they're funny or people who are funny, but don't know why. And so they're afraid of if I find out it's going to turn it off. And so I'll just, I'll just say it's comedy K sounds where it's a rule of threes, three things are always funny or whatever, which is, they, and it's also in, helpful to people like me who are not funny, who are like, I can get up to mediocrity with these cheats. It yeah, doesn't so, ever get me to the, you know, like, it won't get you to pro level, but no, but the, not, no way. But in his book, the reason I bring it up is because at a certain point he feels like his, he's, it, he, it's, he's performing in the late sixties and then the early seventies and like hard hitting political comedy is the thing that is the most like anti-war comedy and anti-Nixon comedy. And that by doing something that is, so the exact opposite of that, yeah. that he is, he's, it, it, he talks about how he was rebelling, uh, rebelling against 
what the mainstream of comedy that the new the new rebellion would be to do something that was just wacky silly stuff that has no foot in real life and so there's something about people talk about like where's the positive uplifting comedy but it takes a real break from prevailing models and it also takes someone being willing to say i'm going to do something that people will enjoy but they won't necessarily praise me as yeah smart or relevant or any of that and certainly right now it feels like we're living in a comedy time where with stand-up comedy at the very least there's this feeling that i i'm gonna have to cut all this stuff out of the book because i've in my outlines right now i'm going I'm, I'm redoing my outlines for each chapter and the the i i keep having things where i'm like don't fall into this trap you're not a truth teller like tell jokes but because it's like there's a very valuable role often for comedians in doing that but the idea that a stand-up comedian's primary goal is to shock or challenge or, you know, hold up a warped mirror to warped society is one that I think is very, at the very least, off-putting and is very damaging to a lot of comics who are starting out and kind of feel like their voice has to be, I'm going to talk about what's big or important. And it also keeps us from comedy often that is not like that. Like there's, there's that, uh, and I say to, uh, I'm like, there's all, all those political comedians in the 60s and 70s. And aside from like Richard Pryor, maybe whose work was not often explicitly political, but you know, it, it was very autobiographical in a way that could, had political tone to it. Or aside from him and like George Carlin and Dick Gregory, I feel like what's the comedy of that time that lasts? And it's right. it's like Steve Martin, the way that like there was plenty of uh there was plenty of political comedy in the 30s. And what's the stuff that laughs from that lasts for me is the Marx Brothers is the stuff where you can read something into it if you want to, but it's really right. just what's funny about it is, is to me is how divorced from reality it is. You know how much it's breaking the rules of reality in a in a gleeful way. And I've often it inherently is going to last longer than something that's only funny if you remember yesterday's headline. Yeah, something that's that's you know, topical. And um, one of the things that I want to talk about in that is that that might be okay that when you're doing relevant comedy, it's okay if it doesn't last, like it's for the moment. But it's that. It doesn't mean we should devalue the stuff that is not of the moment. The way that, like, of all the movies of the 50s that were about serious topics and, you know, either about race or youth crime or things like that or the Cold War or whatever, it's like, what 50s movie do I want to watch? I want to watch Singing in the Rain. Like, yeah. I want to watch the movie that is pure joy and yeah. speaks to me at such a, such a, like, such an emotional level in a way that the other stuff doesn't. And, or what movie do I want to watch from like uh the 1980s you know actually i don't know like ghostbusters probably <laughs> you know like yeah. the, the stuff that that is uh i say that not having watched it in a while and knowing that i watch it with my kids there's gonna be some stuff in it where i'm like oh, yeah, there's oh just, i forgot yeah, there's about scene this you're gonna go oh my dear lord <laughs> well it's not i know well if it's if it's if it's ray's uh if it's ray's dream scene yeah that's even <laughs> totally. when i was like even when I was a kid watching that movie, I was like, what is this? Like, why is this, why in, is this movie? in here? And what? it's, I should that, not be seeing this. And that scene is apparently all that's left of a much longer sequence that I guess they shot and then cut. And, really? and I don't know why they even left that much why? of it in. Yeah, it's not necessary to the plot at all. It's no. very strange. But uh, that, I, I do wonder if some of what's motivating that in our age is a, a, a kind of I don't know, financial incentive structure is the right way to word it, but kind of an attention economy that says, if you make a political joke that translates really well into a very short clip on, on, you know, on, on TikTok, that's going to fly around. And if you do something silly, it's not going to get you attention. 
And so I wonder if that's I one think of that's, those fears. I think that's certainly part of it. There's certainly market forces that right now, uh, if you can talk, if you can speak to the right audience, then you instantly have an audience. And yeah. if you're on one side of politics or another, then you instantly have kind of a defined audience. Whereas if you are, you know, Steve Martin being silly and Steve Martin or like, Jones, or like, you know, I'm watching that going, I wonder what his politics are. Where's this going to go next? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Or, or like, uh, if you're someone like, uh, Stephen Wright or like Emo Phillips or Judy Tenuta or someone who is like a, or, a um, uh, or like Maria Bamford, someone who is not explicitly political, but is like more offbeat, you know, yeah. then it's, harder for, then you have to build that audience slower because it's not yeah i think you're right that it's, it's harder for someone to define you you know what is this person and what do they do and the i realized that all the all the comics i've named are all like middle-aged or older i need to think they're, of they're or, or not or no longer alive <laughs> yeah like i need to i need to i need to i need to really this is part of the process for this book has been like i gotta learn some newer comics so i can like yeah. re reference them but that i think there is a, there is a market attention structure for that i think and also but i also think there's a social uh yeah social forces that are kind of not peer pressure exactly, but there is social pressure to, I got to say something, especially at this point in history, I got to say something. And it takes, I don't know if I'm going to call it courage exactly, but it takes real self discipline. I think sometimes as a comic to, to do something that is almost deliberately irrelevant, you know, that yeah. is not, it's not part of anything yeah. and it's not a, and to, but to do it in a way that is, still like meaningful or funny or new. And that's something that I've been yeah. struggling or, with or quite a bit. Because you know? it's funny and that maybe is enough. Like yes. To say, this is not going to get me respect. This is not going to get clicks, but the audience is going to respond. They're going to enjoy it. And in the, I, you know, I'm going to trust that in the long run, my job is to make them laugh and that's it. And I succeeded in that and they'll come back for that. But I think that's hard to have that faith and not yes. say, Nope, I got to, you know, have them not just laugh, but they have to laugh and go, now you are my favorite and I'm putting this on TikTok. There's a lot, I think there's a lot of, yeah, to, to be able to say, I'm I'm willing to be just the, the you know, the joke. Yeah, I think, and there's a, and there's also, I'll, every comedian at a certain point wants to be taken seriously. I mean, it's the, it's I, the Jerry Lewis thing where it's like, but I'm a serious actor. That's why I'm making a movie about the Holocaust, you know, like <laughs> that there's a, the, the need to be, that there's a devaluing of, of, laughter or devaluing of joy to a certain yeah. extent in in a i don't know if it's in what would you if it's like western culture or if it's capitalist culture or if it's what because it predates capitalism the the right. the disrespect no. towards humor you know but uh right. that the i don't that uh that you have to be kind of like shakespeare for your comedies to be considered something something special to a certain extent and even his comedies are like devalued slightly compared to his tragedies you know yeah. like the, the ones saying the real serious stuff well but... the, you should look in there are people who've done some really great work on the idea that we are constantly playing multiple status games at the same time mm -hmm. and, and again our primate ancestors the status games were very simple you know is this person going to have sex with me is this person going to give me food i've got to make sure i stay in the tribe or else i will die like there were mm -hmm. you know the, these concerns and now we're playing so many status games that the person is saying i am succeeding in making the audience laugh i am 
failing in earning their respect? And how can, you know, is it okay? Can I, can, is it acceptable for me to succeed in one and fail in the other for a prolonged period of time? And you end up with somebody who's had a long career of making people laugh saying, now I need to do a movie about the Holocaust. Like, yeah. no, no, you don't. You were succeeding. You had the, the status game of the wealth. You had the status game of the audience. You had the status game of the laughter and you're choosing a different status game now. Well, it's funny. How, like, yeah, like, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that before because it's, I think the terms that the closest I came to that was when it seemed very strange to me that rich people all wanted to be famous at a yep. certain point, that it was like, it's not enough that I'm super rich. I also need to have a TV show and an album. And it was yep. like, I thought it was kind of a deal we made in society that like rich people already have everything. So they don't also need to be like famous, beloved celebrities, you know, but multiple status but, games, right? But I guess it's multiple status. I hadn't thought about that. Ugh, yeah, modern, I mean, that was helpful modern. for me. I was like, oh, now I see why this person is so miserably sad and, as a billionaire. Yeah. They feel like they're losing the other status games. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's Elon Musk where he's yep. an incredibly rich person. He is not amazing at running businesses, but he clearly has businesses, but he really wants people to think he's super funny. Like, right. and he wants, it's, it, it feels like he would give up half to two thirds to three quarters of his money if people were like you're hilarious yep. like this and he's very not funny you now like you just you know, or to be loved yeah to go we love you even though you're you know like and he just can't go aren't the cars enough <laughs> like nope he needs the affirmation and you know as somebody who desperately needs external validation to the point where i named my dog external validation i get <laughs> it like my evie it, my, you know that because when i walk into the house she's happy that's uh -huh. the perfect name for her right uh so i i understand that impulse but to watch him give away you know more money than any human being has ever lost in that short a period of time because he just desperately needs kind of the worst people in society to say we like you because he needs that so badly it's it really is kind of tragic i, I wonder if you know somebody will make a great citizen kane kind of film about Maybe. this guy who threw it all away because he just needed people to laugh at dumb memes and it's pretty tragic good. but it's also like there's something it, there's something about it that where i'm like okay like i mean this is the thing i guess that all a lot of a lot of culture has been about like where you see unhappy rich people in movies and it's like see don't don't envy what they have you're better off poor because right. poor people have heart or whatever and but like there's part of me that's like you know what maybe i am better off it's the end of uh i don't know if you're a if you're a marvel comics reader but oh, the end God. of the end of infinity gauntlet number six where adam warlock has the infinity gauntlet and thanos is a farmer and he and he has the thing where he's like i who only wanted power now have because it was Adam Warlock who only wanted the piece of the soul gem now wields the power of omnipotence and the responsibility of omnipotence and I who only wanted power to be God am now a farmer and I think I got the better half of the deal and yeah. it's like that the that it's like all right well I don't have hundreds of billions of dollars but at the same time like I love my family. Like my family, my family loves me and I have friends that like and I, me. And I'm not know? sleeping in, you know, an office building in San Francisco surrounded by people who hate me. Like, well, that'll happen. You know, the next time I run a show, that'll happen. I mean, it won't be <laughs> yes. in an office building in San Francisco, but yes. you know, it'll be, you know. We, we have to get this script done tonight. We shoot tomorrow. Oh, we, the run through went really bad. We got to rewrite by, you know, 4 a.m. tomorrow. Yes. And I'm sleeping there and my, and everyone working there is like, ugh, ugh this guy. That guy. So that'll happen. Yeah. yeah yes. Uh, we'll quickly go to our ad break and then we will come back with our uh, with some daydreaming. I think that'd be good. So, Doug, uh, if you will take us to our ad break. Thank you. This week's ad is for ads, more specifically advertisers. 
Even more specifically, people who want to advertise something on our show. Are you an author struggling to let readers know about your book? Do you have a product that would appeal to the kind of person who also likes to listen to writers talk about procrastinating? Do you like ads filled with questions? No? Well, then give us a better one by going to the homepage for this show and clicking the link on the bottom about advertising here. We're now on our 11th episode. We have over 500 downloads. That's not a lot, but the graphs are going in the right direction and our rates are very low. So why the heck not? And our very first live show is going to be this weekend. Fan Expo Portland is from the 17th to 19th. And on the 19th, we will be recording our first live show with guests Jeff Davis, David Koch, and Nicholas P. Robinson. We would love to have you there. We will also be in Seattle April 6th to 9th for NorwestCon, and we'll have a live show there too. Guests for that one are TBA. Please come join the live audience, bring some fun questions to ask the panels, uh, and uh, we hope to see you there. Thanks. Thank you, Doug. You're the best. Uh, so we are back. Uh, so what have you been daydreaming about? You know, daydreaming, I always say, is simultaneously part of the writing process and a potential uh, way of, uh, of, you know, procrastinating. What have you been daydreaming about lately? It's funny, The some of what we already talked about, this idea of like, what is what is a way to do kind of a new thing in comedy that pushes past commentary or, you know, what that, that exists as its own new thing, the way that that Steve Martin comedy was kind of like, I'm just going to be silly. I'm going to do this act that never quite gets started. And like, is just, and almost feels like it's not a real act, you know, and is a parody of, of entertainment. Um, like I've been kind of daydreaming about that and also daydreaming about um, the, trying to make this idea work where I've, I, for a long time, I've been thinking about a, a, a world where uh, you can't go inside where there's a, there's like this, this, this thing that has that lives inside of buildings that is like a virus that instantly liquefies you. So you can't go inside. So everyone has to live outside and they're trying to recreate the comforts of indoor life outside. And I just had this image that's always been in my head or always for like the past, you know, six, seven months or eight months or whatever, this image of, somebody waking up in the morning in their bed and there's a bedside table with a lamp and an alarm clock, but they're in a forest and they're eating breakfast at a table and they're watching TV and everything's hooked up to generators because they're in the middle of a forest. And just like the idea of having to, everyone having to replicate life on the outside, on outdoors that they want to have indoors because they cannot go indoors anymore. Yeah. It's just not safe to go indoors. And so I've been daydreaming about that and I don't know what to do with it. So that's, how much uh, of that is how much of that is showed in front of for moving to LA? You know, where oh. you're like, I could actually step outside and survive, whereas my <laughs> friends right now are, it's five degrees. <laughs> Maybe. And I'm sure it's, well, but the opposite of that is then like living in LA and being like, well, this is actually the reality for a lot of people who live in LA. They yeah. don't have homes. And so they do live outside. And so they they do have to recreate some semblance of indoor yeah. living outdoors. So I think it's a, I think it is a lot of me trying to like digest that stuff, you know, but it all, but it mostly comes from the image of somebody like sitting at a table eating breakfast watching tv but there there are trees yeah. all around them you know but i think it would, it would be fun to put I mean, one of the things that I, I talk about with my students is you know we have this sense in 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 our culture that you know people who are wealthy and at the top have all the skills mm -hmm. and this is this lie that is told by people who are at the top right but i tell them I don't have the skills to be homeless. Like there, there's yeah. a lot of knowledge. You could do some really fun stuff with telling the story of, 
you know, people are suddenly booted out of their homes and there are people who have the skill set to survive, yeah. uh, you know, and they are the people who are the most downtrodden and that we have treated like absolute, you know, garbage. And yet they know how to live outdoors and I don't. And somebody who is, you know, an Elon Musk, even less so. And mm-hmm. that could be interesting to see how that would play out in a story. That's I, a good I, angle on that. I have to figure out a way to do it that wasn't just like the menu or something where it's right. like, now the rich people get their comeuppance, yeah. you know, ha, but there ha, is, ha. but the idea of like that kind of overturning of society. Well, in yeah, a that's, a, that's a good Z, way to think about they it. They did a really good, uh, clever thing with World War Z where it was, you know, now the society has been so shuffled that the people who struggled the most were people who were like, attorneys who were being told in order for us to survive you now must be a plumber Mm -hmm. like i can't make that adjustment whereas folks you know who are in the middle are a little more flexible about okay i i i go to a job and i do this work for money and the higher you got up on the echelon the harder it was and and but they were painted in a sympathetic way it wasn't like haha the the rich yeah terrible it was the the rich are have been very much tracked into a path where it's genuinely difficult to you know go oh yeah i I can i can i guess tomorrow i'm a plumber and the next day i'm you know that's certainly a constant worry to me what am i going to do when society collapses because i don't have but that's but that's where so there's something that that uh john stewart said to me years ago where because i haven't talked to him in years so i had to been years ago i haven't talked to him in a while (laughs) but the the he was we were talking about kind of the streaming was kind of a relatively new thing and you know digital delivery of of content and he was saying we're going to be fine. He goes, whatever the delivery method is, they need stories. They need jokes. Like we're going to be fine. And I, and in my head, I'm like, well, you're going to be fine. Of course you're a millionaire. Like, but that's, you know, but that even in that setting, even in the world where society's collapsed, the need for entertainment and the need for storytelling is still going to be, if anything is going to be more paramount because there's going to be less of it available. So like, it's going to be, that need is going to still be there. And it's a thing that my wife's best friend from childhood, who still is her best friend, is a theater director. And she was saying when COVID hit, she was like, I have to remind myself, a lot of theaters are going to close because of this. But theater is not going right. to close. Like, there's always going to be theater. That it's if it's been around for thousands of years. Like, it's not – that is not going away. And so I think – so I feel, so now I'm feeling more optimistic about when society collapses. That I'll be – you know, me and my – it'll be like um, in uh, in the – uh, the seventh seal or something where it's like, you know, they're, you're, they're a family of traveling entertainers. And they're making their way through the plague lands. You yes. know? Yeah. But, I'm, uh, I'm very ambitious. I just want to be the person who, you know, when he is sitting around the fire telling his story, that story then becomes the Iliad and the Odyssey and is still being told in 8,000 years. Yeah. But like, it's sure, sure. the guy sitting by a fire telling a story. Like I'm, you know. yeah. The guy who, I mean, that's one of the, the, the theory about that I remember reading once about uh, why the, why Homer's work is so full of like repeated phrases and the theory that like, well, yeah, there are, he could fall back on that stuff when he's thinking about the next thing he's going to say. Yep. Like, I'm like, oh, yep. I love that. Well, like, I tell my students, yeah. I mean, then somebody else had to memorize it. And that's yeah. why we get it. And we're like, this is brilliant. Well, yeah, it was collaboratively created over hundreds of years <laughs> yeah. by the next person who's memorizing and going, this line of Homer sucked. I can make that one better. Like, yeah. by the time we get it, it's very polished. But yeah, it's got to have that repetition because somebody's got to memorize this darn thing. It's really long. <laughs> yeah, know? that's bonkers. That's It's amazing that people are able to do that. That, but yeah. I guess they didn't have their phones to look at, so yeah. you could concentrate a little more. What were you going to do? You got It's like I, I reading about um years ago about Solzhenitsyn and how he would he, write poetry in his brain while he was in the gulag, and he would have to he would 
write a line in his head and then think of it over and over again until he had memorized it. And then he'd write the next line. And I'm like, oh, imagine the discipline, but not, and it is amazingly disciplined. He's able to do it, but also like, there's not a lot competing for his mental, for his imagination at that moment when he's doing hard labor in the the, the gulag. So it's like, (laughs) it's probably a little easier to focus on the same line of poetry over and over again. Yes, he was not distracted by his phone. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i oh the, the the phone distraction is i i have found is problematic the the the, the thing that like made me realize how distracted i become by my phone is uh, i was watching uh 1899 have you seen the show on netflix no i haven't it's really clever i think you'd enjoy it uh the the ending is you know it, it it's a little bit every show has a bad ending shows shows it, always and always almost always in bad and, and it's this just one like, is better than most but, but it's, i feel like once we all show. once we all agree that tv show endings will always be disappointing right. it's like right great like well, a, and, and this is the kind of show that lends itself to a bad ending unfortunately it's like lost where the whole thing is building towards you know what uh, is the see, mystery some some and reveal it's, yeah it's hard to pull that off you know and they do a pretty good job but the thing that's great about it is it's set you think on this ship in 1899 that's crossing the atlantic ocean and mm-hmm. the characters all speak different languages and you have to try and remember who speaks which language because some of the time they're speaking to somebody and the the you know you're, you're trying to keep track of are they actually confessing this thing are they just kind of talking out loud believing this person doesn't understand them but they oh, really do or are they communicating and i'm watching this and i'm going I'm just going to look away and check my, oh no, I got lost because it's subtitled. <laughs> yeah. You cannot look away, you know, like, oh, this person was speaking English so I can look, oh no, wait, no, but now, now this person's speaking <laughs> Spanish or German or whatever. And so I was like, I have a problem. I need to work on my attention span. Yeah, it's very hard. If I'm not in a movie theater, it's very hard for me to not look around or check something. And But there's something about being in a movie theater where the lights are out. So even though you can look at a phone, it's like it signals to you like, there's only one thing to look at. Like, look at this one screen, you know, but if with TV, it's very hard not to not to be distracted. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if that's one of the things that will help preserve theater and, and, and you know, actual cinema going is it's good for us to have a space where we focus, like the yeah, geographic space of focus. It is, but it's also really easy to not go to it and to watch stuff at home. I think it's yes. the good for the same way that like, I know it would be good if I remembered to take vitamins every day, but I also don't want to do it. And it's, I don't, and it's easier for me not to, so I don't. And then my right. wife goes, did you take your vitamins? And I go, uh, no, I'll do it tomorrow. So it's, I think- there's a, it's very, uh, it's the, the ease of something and the how good it is for you is, is yeah. it, it's a constant battle. It's a, well, it's an eternal, eternal conflict, yes. you know? Yes. But what, you know, what I expect is, and this may happen with, you know, even movie, the movie theater going experience, but people are going to go to the theater less, but it will mean more. It's going to be this thing where it's, oh, you know, which is going to be hard on the industry. Theater will not go. It already is. It's, it's, uh-huh. yeah, it's already hard. And it's, I wish that, uh, I don't know. I wish if there's some way I wish we could go back to when going to the theater or going to movies was more of a casual thing. Even like I used when I lived in New York, I went to the theater frequently, but it always it was a big production. Like I had to get the tickets ahead of time. They were expensive. Like I had to get dressed up. We'd make a night out of it. We have to get a babysitter. And so it's like I, I, I didn't get to experience, but I wish I had the years when theater was the thing that everybody did relatively casually, you know, and the and there was so much theater going on that like. Oh, this is sold out. I'll go over to this show. Whereas yeah. the the way it was with movies when I was a kid, where there would be, you know, a bunch of different movies playing. You just go to the movies and you'd yeah. be like, oh, I missed that. I'll go see this thing instead. Whereas yeah. now it feels like you go to the movies and there's not that much playing and 
you it's a big you have to get the tickets ahead of time and it's a big production you know and you're weighing it against i you know you're looking if there were six movies when we were kids at the at the you know movie theater you'd show up and you'd go i could go to this or i could go to that yeah now you're going i could go to this or i could go to that only that I would rather watch at home. It's not worth the money. So there's mm-hmm. this other competition. And this that, is the yeah. movie that I don't really want to see that badly, but it's the next chapter in a long saga and everybody's going to be talking about it. Yes. So I guess I better see it. It was one of the, I've talked about this on the Flophouse many times. It was one of the best decisions I ever made last year when I was like, what movie am I going to watch right now? I guess I could watch the new Thor movie. I don't think I'm going to like it very much from everything I've heard. But I guess I got to watch. I have to watch it, I guess, because everyone's talking about it. Or I did record this Spanish movie that the director of Spirit of the Beehive made, and I don't know anything about it. I could watch that, and I didn't. It's this movie called El Sur, and it was it's such a beautiful movie. And it was so it was like just the movie I needed to see at that point in my life. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, like I don't have to see the movie that everyone is talking about. I can see the movie that I'm going to get something out of. Yes. Like, I'm going to get something emotional out of. Yes. And so people are like, Oh yeah, when are you going to go see the new Ant-Man movie? And I'm like, I don't know. And I'll see obligated. it at some point, maybe, but it's I don't have to. To go, and I am not obligated. I yeah, do this, not have to see this right now. I was just talking you... to a talking to a friend of mine, and he was like, "Did you watch Moon Knight?" And I'm like, "No." And he's like, "Well, it's not essential." But and I was like, "None of it's essential. <laughs> like we, we don't have to. There's no reason we have to watch any of it, especially someone like me who I've been reading comic books for 30 years, so I've already seen these stories. Right. I don't know like a friend of mine." was a different friend was talking about the the captain america and the falcon show and he's like oh yeah they're doing the john walker kind of captain america before he's u.s agent storyline and i'm like okay maybe i'll watch that wait a minute i've read that i don't think they're gonna do it that much better and it wasn't my favorite so i don't need to like i like remembering back going i remember that storyline it wasn't bad but it wasn't my favorite like you know i can whereas this was you know when the 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 new mcu took off uh was you know i was as a kid an iron man collector which i now as an adult realize was not the greatest comic book was basically a batman ripoff like but I thought Iron Man was so cool when I was a kid. I had all I had Iron Man number six on. Oh wow! Uh, and yeah, I mean, I loved Iron. And so when they sold off all their big titles and they were stuck making Iron Man, I was like, "Really? This movie that you know?" And then and then it everything ended up hinging on of all characters, Iron Man. Like if you told me twenty years earlier the MCU is going to be built around Iron Man, I would like, <laughs> like yeah, yes, no way. It's, like it's, it's really be amazing. Marines, you know, I mean, you have to or like worse that, I mean, because they didn't have the rights to make Spider Man movies at the yeah. time. But that was one of the, the when that Spider Man um, uh, Homecoming came out, and so much of it was Spider Man being like, "Oh, I wish I was like Iron Man." I was like, "Spider Man doesn't need Iron Man in his Spider Man movie. Like this is, he's, he's he's the greatest character in fiction. Like he doesn't need Iron Man." taking up yeah. all the screen time like oh, yeah i mean can you imagine when we were kids if somebody had said oh yeah the the, the cinematic universe is going to be spider-man wishing it could be iron man you'd be like <laughs> what that makes no sense like that's not who he's gonna he's got maybe reed richards there's no way he's gonna want to be iron yeah. man you know but yeah well but it takes it's that's the great thing about life, I guess. You can never, you can never tell what's going to happen. Yeah, and it, for an, the the rare Iron Man fan, it worked out really well. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, okay, this character that I, you know, he didn't really get into his alcoholism. I thought that would have been interesting, <laughs> but okay, you know. Um, so uh, each week we do a weekly poll where we, you know, toss something up on Twitter, Facebook, and ask people to weigh in. And so uh, last week's poll, this came from um, uh, Michael Roth. 
should pets be allowed to sleep on the bed with you? And it turned out to not be nearly as debatable as I thought. 91.7% said, wow. absolutely, pets on the bed. That's Only an extreme landslide. Three are heartless monsters. So that was, uh, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was pretty overwhelming. So what should our poll be for this next week? Well, if this isn't too personal, I, would, I was wondering what your listeners feel. Uh, this is a question that is really tearing apart my household, which is, should I grow a long, bushy beard? My children keep telling me, Daddy, you should grow a long, bushy beard. And that's the exact phrase they use every time. They say, Daddy, you should grow a long, bushy beard. And my wife does not want me to grow a beard. She wants me to keep shaving, as is I already shave irregularly enough, you know, but she does not want me to grow a long beard. And so I want to know, listeners... Should I grow a long, bushy beard? I'm going to open up the armor here and show the viewers who don't know if this is your first time. I have the big, bushy beard, and this is relatively new. This was a COVID decision, a COVID lack of decision. This was a COVID depression product. Uh, You know, nothing matters anymore. I might as well grow it out. Um, But I always wanted to have a long beard because I, you know, uh, have this deep-seated need to be Gandalf. Uh-huh. Uh, that's, you know, just, uh, you know, unfulfilled in, in so many ways in my life. And I was like, but I can have the beard. Uh, I don't have the magic ability. Um, <laughs> you know, so you I can started, hang out with short people if I you want hang, to, yes, but you can't um, call down giant eagles to carry no, them to safety. No, yeah. I can't, you know, defeat the Balrog and then come back very Jesus-like. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I've been growing this thing out and luckily my fiance likes it. And so here's my question for you. This may tip the scales at all. And this sounds like a bizarrely personal question, but Mm -hmm. is your wife into smells, the smells of things? Uh, I think so. She has a very strong sense of smell uh, and especially towards negative smells. She's, She's always like, open up the windows. Something smells in here, the garbage. And I'm like, I don't smell it. I don't. Beard wax and beard oil. My fiance loves the smell of the bees you know the, the beard wax and mm-hmm. i think that's part of why she's like you have to keep the beard like now i cannot cut it everyone's oh interesting like, this is a little and she's like no 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 i love the beard and i don't <laughs> think she loves the beard i think she loves the beard wax we were we went to uh, the pride parade in portland or the pride which is really more of a festival than and you know it's just this big you know outdoor market of all these mm-hmm. beers and she found um cupcake flavor cupcake smell beard oil and the, I, I'm now obligated to smell like a cupcake everywhere. And that will get you. So you will be able to satisfy the boys with this big bushy beard. And, you know, you've got the, the, the beard oil. So, yes, okay. go, go to the parade, get the cupcake beard oil. It's a big If hit. the poll agrees. If the poll agrees. It's, this is a uh, yeah. binding poll. Up yeah. to the public. Okay, yeah. yes. So everybody weigh in. Should Elliot grow a big, giant, bushy beard? And see, I'm guessing like me, yours would go bushy, right? It would, yeah. My hair is, I have to keep it short these days because it gets very all over the place. Like it's not a, and not in a fun kind of like, look at me, I'm like a creative guy and my hair sticks up just in a messy kind of like, I get very, my sideburns grow faster than the rest of my hair. So that gets very long. And my wife will be like, you got to, you're looking a little 19th century. Like you've got to, you've got, you should trim that. So it's, yeah, it would get very bushy and very Although wavy. That could be the compromise position is maybe you just grow giant sideburns. Oh, I would then, love it, but she would not. She like, would not be a fan. Chester Ray Arthur mutton chops or something. She would right? hate that. She would not like yeah. it. No. Well, and she is more important than the mutton chops. So that's... yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, what's in your to read pile on the, you know, the, the, again, procrastinate you know the books we read as writers are not 
bad for us as writers. They're essential. But what are what are the things you're thinking about reading? What's coming up for you? So I have a lot of piles of books in my to read piles in my to read bookshelf, and they're in my bedroom. So it's the when when I wake up, I'm literally looking at the books that I haven't read yet. Yep. And there's a book that I keep putting off because it's a big hardcover and it's going to be unpleasant to carry around. But I really want to read it, and I think I'm going to just go for it because it helps me with my work anyway right. which is this book called four of the three musketeers the marx brothers on stage by robert s bader and it is taught and i think the marx brothers the marx brothers are my favorite my favorite comedians of all time i think they're maybe the funniest people who ever lived and they i think of them as film comedians but by the time they started making movies they were already in their 40s and they'd had this long career in vaudeville and on the stage and so this is i think maybe the only book that explicitly focuses on that and what was their oh. act like, how did it develop and trying to cut through a lot of the myth that has grown up over the years because of stories the Marx Brothers would tell or kind of just anecdotes that would be half invented or fully invented that that have become attached to them. And so there's a there's a podcast that's about the Marx Brothers and they talk about it a lot. And it just it's a part of their lives that I am much like I, I and so love Abraham Lincoln. But his actual work as a lawyer, I was not ever that familiar with. And there was a book I read where it was just about him as a lawyer and the kinds of cases that he handled. And I'm like, that. so this is like, I want to fill in this kind of very extensive and very important gap in their lives. Because to them, I think they were, they're like, we're comedians, we perform on stage, and then we made some movies. They weren't, I'm going to be on stage until I can make it into right. the movies. Like, they started performing when movies were nothing. When they, you know, right. when they were, they were one reelers at best. So the... So I'm really excited about that. And then the other one is when I finish this joke writing book, I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to read Gargantua and Pantagruel by Moliere. Uh, or is it Rebelais? Who wrote Gargantua and Pantagruel? No, it's it's Rebelais, isn't it? Yeah. Is it, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, it's Gar it's it's Rebelais, not, not, not Moliere. Sorry. I got my French writers mixed yes. up. It's this book that like I've been reading about it for years. It's 500 years old. It's a thousand pages long. It's like all jokes about philosophy or sex and scatological stuff and i was reading in in my research for this book joke farming i was reading a book about humor and it was going on and on about this book and i was like you know what i should just read this book like i gotta read like i i'm i've heard about it for you know so for such a long time i don't know anyone who's ever read it i have no one i know has ever read it it was not assigned to me in college or anything like that it's one of these books that's like it's in like the canon but People don't particularly read it, but I'm finally going to read it. I'm going to read this thousand page humorous philosophical novel about two giants who, and like all the trouble they get into. And so that's, that sounds that's, awesome. Like, oh, I mean, it, I think I'm going to enjoy it a lot, but I'm, it's going to take a long time. The same way that like when I finally read Tristram Shandy, which I had been wanting to read for years and I finally read it and I was like, this is a great book, but it's taking me a long time to get through it. You know, um, that's what's going to happen with this. So I'm going to, when I finish writing this book, that's my reward for myself is I'm going to finally read gargantua and pantagruel and just be like yeah this is this is my next month of reading it's just and this it's a, it's this a vacation book. like this is your reward yes. you get yeah. to check out and go hang out with giants <laughs> for a month i just you know? i guess to get to hang out with with hang out with with Revelays talking to me about giants yeah yes. and, and and all the and all the like stuff they ate and threw up and things like that you know yes oh that sounds great well the one that i am excited to check out but not so excited that i've gotten around to it it's that kind of book uh, but i saw this and i just had to grab it it's rebecca solnit's orwell's roses mm -hmm. and she writes about george orwell who's one of my kind of you know literary 
you know, icons. Like I like him in terms of what he has written in terms of his politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's somebody that I admire a great deal and and his biography is fascinating. Um, But she also talks, you know, this insight into the fact that he was really into growing roses and then her own experience. And so it's this mixture Mm. of memoir about what she has learned from growing roses and how that has helped her connect to George Orwell. And I, I love Orwell. I, I think we, we we don't pay we do this very superficial reading of orwell where we say orwell was t- telling us that you know authoritarian dictators are bad well even the fact that orwellian just applies to one of his books right. like it doesn't necessarily right. really apply to his like it doesn't or i guess two i guess or animal farm also but it's like yeah. like the uh it feels like when you say orwellian you're not talking about like the road to wagon pier or yes. like keep the apodaster yeah, flying or but... something yeah yeah, and and you know, and I, but but even when you just look at 1984 and Animal Farm, I think we are reluctant to engage with the way Orwell was saying the problem is the working class people not organizing, and you know, the the the, the proles not stepping up and seeing that they could do something. Like we want to read it as you know, middle class liberals and go, yeah, the authoritarians are bad. Like. And, and what is our responsibility and what, you know, and so there's so much more depth to plumb there. And then the other thing is I have started growing a ton of roses. My ex uh, uh, did not like roses and my very petty way of coping that was not, you know, I, I don't want to hurt this person. I don't want to be, you know, angry. I don't want my son to see what I'm going through, but the way I'm going to process this divorce is just growing lots and lots of roses to the point where I think like- it's a healthy like, way to do it. Yeah. I felt like it was relatively healthy. Yes. And so my front yard is just a ton of roses. So I'm excited to go, oh, does this connect me to Rebecca Solnit, who I think is brilliant. Like every interview I've ever heard of hers, I think I've only read one other book of hers, but she's really smart. I haven't read anything by her. Yeah, she's, she's, uh, I believe she's in- Oh, she wrote Men Explain Things to Me. Okay, yeah. So I'm, 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 I have written, I've read around her. I've read about her stuff, but I haven't read her. And I've heard a handful of interviews and every time I'm like, I need to read more of her. So she's, yeah, she's certainly on my, but you know, if she's going to connect me to herself and George Orwell and Roses, like this is in my wheelhouse. I really ought to yeah. read this book. So. I bet my wife would really like that book. My wife is a is a librarian and was, you know, an English major and is a and loves gardening. So oh yeah. I bet yep. she would really like it. Yeah, there's okay. there's a gift idea for you. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, finally. Yeah. If I hadn't already bought her a Valentine's Day gift, <laughs> I could throw this in. Um, so where can people find you? What's the best place for folks to find you? I live in Los Angeles, but please don't come find no, me that's, there. That's weird. Just stay yeah. stay away from my house, please. <laughs> I don't. I, I have a family. Please don't. Uh, but if you want to find me online, uh, I'm on Twitter at at Elliot Kalin. That's E L L I O T T K A L A N. Uh, I don't double post... L double K. Spell it right. Yeah, thank you. Too well. Double L W. They used to call me Full House at uh, at college sometimes, or Two Ts, because it was the that's Two Ts was something that they called me a lot. But because uh, I have to correct people constantly, yeah. uh, and the I don't post a huge amount, but I interact with people on it. I yeah. find that it, it I'll promote things on there. I don't do too many posting like jokes or yeah. thoughts. I used to do that, and I found that it it felt like I was just kind of throwing, just screaming into a void, and that was not helpful. Mm-hmm. But if you reach out to me on Twitter, I'll more likely than not, you know, speak back to you. I like to have people connect with me that way. And uh, I my am on the podcast The Flophouse, which comes out every week on the Maximum Fun Network. Uh, on alternating weeks, we either talk about a bad movie that we've just watched, or we uh, are just doing nonsense that's usually movie based, but uh, not always. And the uh, and it comes out; it's available wherever wherever you get a podcast. The Flophouse is 
available there. So you could go to www.flophousepodcast.com, I think it is, but just go to your podcast app and, yeah, and just look for it there. It's called The Flophouse and you'll find it. And we've been doing it for a decade and a half and we show no signs of stopping. And I recently was like, well, we started doing this when we were in our 20s and now we're in our 40s. Like, are we just going to keep doing this? Like, is it conceivable you, at some point we'll have done this have for 25 I mean, years? A point at which you're just obligated. Like, yeah. okay, I guess we're doing this forever. Yeah, uh, exactly. And and uh, and if you listen to the early ones and you get mad at us, I apologize for whatever it is we said. We we were callow youths back then, and now we're grown. We're that's the thing so. I like about it. Like, there's yeah. never like double down. Like, oh no, we this position we took when we were 28, we are now stuck with. Like, oh no, we've you know we, we've grown out of that. So I don't even not even my opinions about movies aren't even the same as yeah. they were back then. Yeah. So I mean, in some things, yes, in some things, check no, new but, wave. But you know, check. Well, I mean, the check new wave. Oh, I. Flophouse listeners know that I, I talk a lot about the Czech New Wave, this movement in Czech film, Slovak film also. There was a Slovak New Wave as well, but the but the Czech New Wave is really where my heart is. Uh, from basically the the like it's like sixty four to sixty eight, like it's or sixty three. It's this very short period of time before there was a huge government crackdown in Czechoslovakia. But it's a uh, but it's just this 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 period of time where the where Czech film was making telling stories about kind of ordinary people for the most part with a very wry kind of fatalistic but in a funny way sensibility but there are also some of the movies are very serious uh, there's movies like daisies which is a brilliant movie which is a bizarre it's a it's a challenge to everything a movie is supposed to be mm -hmm. uh and it's but then but there's one of my favorite movies of all time closely watched trains is kind of, to me is kind of like the the most Czech new wave movie. Like I was going to point to any movie to say, like, if you watch this, you'll probably like other Czech new wave movies, that one, or this movie called intimate lighting, which is just, a, it's just such a uh, gorgeous, very small scale movie, but the, uh, anyway, yeah, Czech new wave. I talk about it a lot. So I don't, well, I, I want my opinion uh, about you know, that. I try and, I try never and link to everything in the show notes. <laughs> Where would people find those? So if you get the criterion channel, I, if they still have it up, they have a big collection of Czech new wave films. There's also, there's a website called dafilms.com. That's okay. a, a, ostensibly it's a documentary films website, but I was looking for other movies by the director of Daisies. This one, Vera Chitilova, I think her name was. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly. And this was the spot where I was able to find these movies of hers from later in career, her career that I don't even know if they were released on video in the United States ever, you know? So, but Criterion Channel is my, is the, is the easiest source to go to. And, okay. uh, but anyway, that's, I'll just say, for all the opinions on movies that I've since changed my mind on, now you can play this in the future if I decide I don't like that. Yes. But I'll say I'll never change my mind. I'll yes. always, I'll always love Czech New Wave movies. So, Czech but that's, but but the Flophouse, it's it's really it's a podcast that is supposed to be a movie podcast, and it is. But in more senses, it's a comedy nonsense podcast. And there's yeah, the best moments we have are usually not when we're talking about the movie, but when we're talking about something dumb. That came totally off totally of tangential. It just comes up, and it is so far from the film. And those are the moments, yeah, that I am just howling. I I have cried before from laughing. <laughs> at, oh, at, good. I'm glad to hear it. Yes. That's great. Oh, it's so funny. Um, yeah. So I highly recommend. And the great thing is that now the archive is so long that you can yeah. go. Oh, here's a movie that I have you know heard about maybe, and then I can do it, and I'll I'll find myself saying to my fiance like. No, I've never seen that film, but I have heard the Flophouse like, episode. But I about know all, I know enough about it. Yeah, enough to know we should not watch that thing. Yeah, if you need, <laughs> if you need a, if you ever needed to do the cliff notes of garbage, I yes, guess then that's exactly. yeah, we're the ones to go to. Yeah.
So before we get to the end of the show, there is one thing that I wanted to ask you about because uh, it is not writing process. It's related though. So the art in these is phenomenal. And oh, I thank want, you. I, so folks who uh, have not- I mean, I shouldn't say thank you. That's, 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 that's the artist, Andre Moody, who's, a, who's an amazing, he's an amazing comics artist, an amazing painter. And the I love working with him on, on Maniac in New York. It's just like a- He's he's someone I just really enjoy working with him, and he's his work is is gorgeous, and also he's a super enthusiastic person. Like every email I get from him, he has fire emojis along the bottom and stuff like that, and like <laughs> big thumbs ups. And so he's he's a very he's a he's a very wonderful, excitable Italian man. So well, and, and I just encourage a great artist. folks to check these out. My my first impression when I first started reading them was I was like this art style. It's it's uh, a lot of. Like the the colors aren't bright except for the red, and yeah. in such a way that I was like, this looks like a, a like a a Seattle zine from the nineties, <laughs> you know, and then bloody, like you know, mm-hmm. and so and it was it's a really strong choice for the story, like it works yeah. really well that it's it's muted and then suddenly gory, and you're like, yep, that fits. So I feel if like that he's... sounds like the kind of story you'd like. Check it out. Yeah, he's it's it's a that book for anyone who hasn't read it, which is most people in the world, Maniac New York. It's a it's about a New York has been has spent years now being stalked by this slasher killer, uh, this masked, unkillable kind of undead slasher. And at this point, it's just become a thing that people just deal with. It's just it's just it's right. impossible to stop him. So they don't. And people have to live in that city where at any moment this this slasher could destroy you. And these two women decide that they are they're actually going to try. They're actually going to try to to stop him if they can. And uh, Andre's art on it. It's not naturalistic especially in the color but it feels very like it feels real to me in a way that i love and i love his facial expression acting i love the way he draws people's faces but the way he does color it's got he's got such a strong sense of mood and like you're saying yeah it's kind of like pretty muted colors and then the reds are very bright and it feels it feels very new york city to me for someone that like he doesn't live in new york and he's not from new york but it feels like i'm in new york when i'm when i'm reading that comic and he and I, we've, we're just when it comes when working together, we've just we've just been very simpatico. And the the we have two volumes of that book that are out in paperback collections. The third volume, which is called Maniac of New York, don't call it a comeback. That first issue has come out, and now there's three more issues coming out. And we're talking now about doing some more. So now, it's, are they uh, going to join those into a, a, a graphic novel as well? The, eventually, yeah. The so that's yeah. I think it'll the the, comp, the publisher aftershock is not in the there. There's been a lot of news in the comics world about how they're not in the greatest financial strength. So it would really help to get. I think it would help to yes. get a collection out if people bought the individual issues yes, on this one. Issues, please. But uh, but I I have to I I have to assume at some point that it will be yeah. collected into a volume. But it's only the first issue has come out as of this recording. But uh. It's been really fun. It's really fun seeing the pages that Andre's been doing for them and also knowing what he doesn't read ahead in the scripts, mm. but they're written. So knowing what he's going to have to illustrate. And <laughs> I'm very, I'm really excited about, about what he's going to do with it, you know, and imagining you, what you he's going to do. You get to sit around it. and go, wah, ha, ha, ha. Like you're like going, oh, when he gets to this page. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it like he's not going to like having to draw all these people, <laughs> you know, but he's going to do it. But yeah. the there's a, the the not to not to give away too much in the series but the armor i'm wearing is very on point because a big a big uh chunk of this series takes place at the metropolitan museum of art and so i'm like sending him you know you know reference photos of specific parts of the museum and i'm like he's gonna have to do all this 
yeah. <laughs> Guess what you get to take on Rembrandt. Ha ha. Yeah. Oh, but it's yeah. going to be, he's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be gorgeous. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that'll be cool. So yes, everybody check those out. Cause they really are great. Well, uh, thank you so much. I've got to thank a whole bunch of folks. Thanks to the artist, Max Oakland, uh, who reached out and provided one of his songs for our intro song. I prefer the dark. Uh, I prefer the dusk. Let Max, Max know that you uh, like him by following him on Twitter at Max Oakland. Uh, thanks to Halizna CCO for their song Kids for the ad break. If you're in a band and would like to hear a song uh, like your song used on the show, I would love to highlight a listener's work like Max's song. So email me. Uh, thanks, as always, to Doug, the producer, who's clearly going to have to fix this segment where I'm stumbling all over myself. But Doug does amazing work. He will make me sound better. Um, and I cannot forget to mention that Writers Not Writing is a production of Not A Pipe Publishing. So please go to notapipepublishing.com. Check out the amazing books written by all the writers there who didn't procrastinate too much. <laughs> uh, if you like this show, rate and review it wherever you found it. I am old enough that I will never say smash that like button. I find that you got to say it. Phrase. You oh, got to say you got to because it's not enough for them to, to press it or click it. They got to smash oh, it. Yeah, please don't smash it. If you touch it gently, it works the same. People no, just you they know, can feel uh, it. The computer can feel when you're smashing or not don't smash it oh just everything about that just, just makes me cringe um please check out elliot maniac of new york books uh rate and review them too rating and reviewing makes a difference so please make his day click that fifth star it matters uh and then uh 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 i, I you know we end the show i uh, you know normally you have been trying to i've been trying to work my way towards some kind of advice uh and uh and that's been a struggle uh but i think we're we're there so elliot and i want to remind you of three things this week and elliot i'll let you take the first one the first this is something that's very important to me don't wait for permission to write don't even wait for permission to write from yourself the only way to do it is to do it the only way to get better at it is to get better is to is to do it and as much as i know all of us want to procrastinate and not and not write we want to wait till we're ready till only beauty is going to come out of us or only genius we're waiting for this person who tells us i want you to write something for me or you can't just do it if you want to write the only way to do it is to write and to feel completely free to write the way you want to write in that moment and are capable of writing in that moment. So don't wait for anyone's permission to write, not even yourself. You don't feel ready, you're ready. Just go do it. Yep. And this will seem contradictory, but it's not. Uh, second <laughs> in life, as in writing, it is the spaces between that make it meaningful. So don't feel that the time when you are not writing is meaningless time. That is time that will make you a better writer. And third, no matter how much you procrastinate, we're still proud of you. <laughs>